Chapter 1 The Iron Triangle China changed because of us in the past 15 years. We hope in the next 15 years the world changes because of us. Jack Ma On November 11, 2015, in Beijing, in the iconic bubble-like structure bathed in blue light known popularly as the Water Cube, the venue for the aquatics events in the Beijing Olympics held seven years earlier, it wasn't water that flowed, but streams of data. For 24 hours, without interruption, a huge digital screen flickered with maps, charts, and news crawls, reporting in real time the purchases of millions of consumers across China on Alibaba's websites. In front of hundreds of journalists broadcasting the event across China and around the world, the water cube had been repurposed as mission control for the Chinese middle class and the merchants marketing to them. A four-hour live TV special, the 1111 Global Festival Shopping Gala, was broadcast to help keep shoppers up until midnight, featuring actors such as Kevin Spacey, who appeared in a filmed montage as his character from House of Cards, President Frank Underwood, endorsing Alibaba as the place to buy disposable burner cell phones. The gala show culminated in a skit featuring Jack's face as the new Bond girl before he appeared in a tuxedo walking alongside Bond actor Daniel Craig for some onstage antics in the final countdown to midnight. In the first Eight minutes of 11.11.15, shoppers made more than $1 billion in purchases on Alibaba's sites. And they kept on shopping. As the world's largest cash register tallied the takings, Jack, seated next to his friend, the actor and martial artist Jet Li, couldn't resist taking a photo of the huge screen with his cell phone. Twenty-four hours later, 300 million buyers had racked up over $14 billion in purchases, four times greater than 1111's U.S. equivalent, Cyber Monday, which occurred a few weeks later, after Thanksgiving's Black Friday discount day. In China, November 11th is Singles Day, a special annual promotion. In the West, the date commemorates veterans of past wars, but in China, November 11th is the most important day of the year for the merchants fighting for the wallets of the country's newly minted consumer class. On this day, also known as Double Eleven, Shuang Xiai, people in China indulge in a frenzy of pure, unadulterated hedonism. Jack summed up the event. This is a unique day. We want all the manufacturers, shop owners, to be thankful for the consumers— we want the consumers to have a wonderful day. From just 27 merchants in 2009, over 40,000 merchants and 30,000 brands now participate in Singles Day. Total sales in 2015 were up 60% from the $9 billion of the previous year. On that occasion, celebrated at Alibaba's wetland campus in Hangzhou, the company's chief strategy officer, Dr. Zheng Min, described the scene in terms reminiscent of Dr. Frankenstein watching his creation stirring from the dead. The ecosystem has its own will to grow. Alibaba's executive vice chairman, Joe Tsai, echoed the sentiment. You're seeing the unleashing of the consumption power of the Chinese consumer. This power 
has long been suppressed. Household spending in the United States drives two-thirds of the economy, but in China, it barely accounts for one-third. Compared to developed countries, Chinese people don't consume enough. The reason? They save too much and spend too little. To fund their future education, medical expenses, or retirement, many families accumulate substantial amounts of mattress money or precautionary savings. Also, lacking the range or quality of products on offer in the West, consumers in China until relatively recently have little enticement to spend more on themselves. Addressing an audience at Stanford University in September 2015, Jack observed that, in the U.S., when the economy is slowing down, it means people don't have money to spend. But, he joked, you guys know how to spend tomorrow's money or future money or other people's money. China's been poor for so many years, we put our money in the bank. Old habits die hard, but a new habit, buying online, is changing the way consumers in China behave. Alibaba is at the forefront of this shift. Its most popular website is Taobao.com, China's third most visited website and the world's twelfth. A common saying today in China is Wanang de Taobao, meaning you can find everything on Taobao. Amazon has been called the everything store. Taobao, too, sells almost everything, everywhere. Just as Google is synonymous with searching online, in China to Tao something is shorthand for searching for a product online. Alibaba has a much greater impact on China's retail sector than Amazon does in the United States. Thanks to Taobao and its sister site Tmall, Alibaba is effectively China's largest retailer. Amazon, by contrast, only became one of the top ten retailers in America in 2013. Although Alibaba launched Taobao in 2003, it was only five years later that it really came into its own. Until then, China's countless factories churned out products mostly for buyers overseas, shipped to stock the shelves of retailers like Walmart and Target. But the global financial crisis in 2008 changed everything. China's traditional export markets were thrown into a tailspin. Taobao pride opened the factory gates to consumers in China instead. The Chinese government's response to the 2008 crisis was to double down on the old China model, pumping money into the economy that fueled a massive real estate bubble, excess capacity, and yet more pollution. As the bills came in, it became clear that the much-needed rebalancing of the Chinese economy toward consumption could no longer be postponed, and Alibaba is one of the biggest beneficiaries. Jack likes to say that his company's success was an accident. Alibaba might as well be known as 1001 Mistakes. In its early years, he gave three explanations as to why the company survived. We didn't have any money. We didn't have any technology. And we didn't have a plan. But let's look at the three real factors that underpin Alibaba's success today. The company's competitive edge in e-commerce, logistics, and finance, what Jack describes as Alibaba's Iron Triangle. Alibaba's e-commerce sites offer an unparalleled variety of goods to consumers. 
Its logistics offering ensures those goods are delivered quickly and reliably, and the company's finance subsidiary ensures that buying on Alibaba is easy and worry-free. The e-commerce edge. Unlike Amazon, Alibaba's consumer websites Taobao and Tmall carry no inventory. They serve as platforms for other merchants to sell their wares. Taobao consists of nine million storefronts run by small traders or individuals. Attracted by the site's huge user base, these micro merchants choose to set up their stalls on Taobao in part because it costs them nothing to do so. Alibaba charges them no fees, but Taobao makes money, a lot of it, from selling advertising space. Helping promote those merchants who want to stand out from the crowd, merchants can advertise through paid listings or display ads. Under the paid listing model, similar to Google's AdWords, advertisers bid for keywords to give their products a more prominent placement on Taobao. They pay Alibaba based on the number of times consumers click on their ads. Merchants can also use a more traditional advertising model. Paying based on the number of times their ads are displayed on Taobao. The old joke about advertising is: I know at least half of my advertising budget works. I just don't know which half. But with pay-for-performance advertising and a ready market of hundreds of millions of consumers, Taobao commands an enormous appeal to small merchants. Keeping order amid Taobao's virtual alleyways are Alibaba's client service managers, the Shaoar. Thousands of Shaoar mediate any disputes that arise between customers and merchants. These referees, young employees averaging 27 years old, work long hours, often sending messages to vendors late at night. The Shaoar have great powers of enforcement, including the ability to shut down a merchant entirely. They can also offer merchants a carrot, the ability to participate in marketing campaigns. Inevitably, some merchants have sought to corrupt the shawar by offering bribes. Alibaba periodically shuts down merchants caught in the act, and an internal disciplinary unit is constantly on the lookout to root out graft among its employees. But Taobao's success is not explained by the shawar alone. The site works because it succeeds in putting the customer first, bringing the vibrancy of China's street markets to the experience of shopping online. Buying online is as interactive as in real life. Customers can use Alibaba's chat application to haggle over prices. A vendor might hold up a product to his webcam. Shoppers can also expect to score discounts and free shipping. Most packages arrive with some extra samples. Or cuddly toys thrown in, something I have personally grown so used to that when receiving Amazon packages in the United States, I shake empty boxes in vain. The merchants on Taobao guard their reputation with customers fiercely. Such is the Darwinian nature of the competition on the platform. When customers post a negative comment about a merchant or product, they can expect to receive a message. And offers of refunds or free replacements within minutes. Alibaba's e-commerce edge is also honed by another of its websites, Tmall. If Taobao can be compared to a collection of scrappy market stalls, T 
Mall is a glitzy shopping mall. Large retailers and even luxury brands sell their goods on Tmall, and for those customers not yet able to afford them, build brand awareness. Unlike Taobao, which is free for buyers and sellers, merchants pay commissions to Alibaba on the products they sell on Tmall, ranging from three to six percent, depending on the category. Today, Tmall.com is the seventh most visited website in China. In Chinese, the site is called Tianmao or Skycat. Its mascot is a black cat, to distinguish it from Taobao's alien doll. Tmall is increasingly important for Alibaba, generating 136 billion dollars in gross merchandise volume for the company, closing in on the 258 billion dollars sold on Taobao. Alibaba earns almost 10 billion dollars a year in revenue from these sites. Nearly 80 percent of its total sales. Tmall hosts three types of stores on its platform: flagship stores, run by a brand itself; authorized stores, set up by a merchant licensed to do so by the brand; and specialty stores, which carry the goods of more than one brand. The specialty stores account for 90 percent of Tmall vendors. More than 70,000 brands. From China and overseas can be found today on Tmall. In the Singles Day promotion on Tmall, the most popular brands included foreign names such as Nike, Gap, Uniqlo, and L'Oreal, as well as domestic players such as smartphone vendors Xiaomi and Huawei, and consumer electronics and home appliances company Hire. Tmall is a veritable A to Z of brands. From Apple to Zara, luxury brands also sell on the website, although they are careful not to cannibalize sales in their physical stores. The presence of Burberry on the site is a sign that Alibaba is no longer just about cheap goods. U.S. retailers like Costco and Macy's are also on Tmall, part of a drive by Alibaba to connect them along with other overseas stores to customers in China. Costco's Tmall store drew over 90 million visitors to its site in the first two months. Even Amazon is on Tmall, selling imported food, shoes, toys, and kitchenware since 2015. Amazon has long had designs on the China market, but has had to settle for just two percent of it. In addition to Taobao and Tmall, Alibaba operates a Groupon-style site called Juwaswan.com. Juwa Swan is the largest product-focused group buying site in China. Buoyed by the huge volume of goods on Alibaba's other sites, it has signed up more than 200 million users, making it the largest online group buying site in the world. Together, Taobao, Tmall, and Juwa Swan have signed up over 10 million merchants, offering more than 1 billion individual items for sale. Alibaba's websites are popular in part because, as in the United States, shopping online from home can save time and money. More than 10 percent of retail purchases in China are made online, higher than the 7 percent in the states. Jack has likened e-commerce to a dessert in the United States, whereas in China it is the main course. Why? Shopping in China was never a pleasurable experience. Until the arrival of multinational companies like 
Carrefour, and Walmart, there were very few retailing chains or shopping malls. Most domestic retailers started as state-owned enterprises, SOEs. With access to a ready supply of financing, provided by local government or state-owned banks, they tended to view shoppers as a mere inconvenience. Other retailers were set up by real estate companies more concerned with the value of the land underneath their store than with the customers within. A key factor in the success of e-commerce in China is the burden of real estate on traditional retailers. Land is expensive in China because it is a crucial source of income for the government. Land sales account for one quarter of the government's fiscal revenues. At the local government level, they account for more than one-third. One prominent e-commerce executive summed it up for me. Because of the way our economy is structured, the government has a lot of resources. The government decides the price of land. The government decides how resources are channeled, where money is spent. The government relies too heavily on taxes and fees associated with selling land. That almost destroyed the retail business in China and pushed a lot of demand online. They deprived offline retailers of the opportunity to benefit from rising consumer demand, which they effectively channeled to e-commerce players. Successful brick-and-mortar retailers, from department stores to restaurants, suffer from success. If they bring in lots of customers to their store, they can expect a hefty rent hike when their lease is up for renegotiation. As a consequence, there has been far less investment in marketing, customer service, human resources, or logistics in China's traditional retail sector than in the West. The result? China's retail market is highly fragmented and inefficient. In the United States, the top three grocery chains account for 37% of all sales. In China, they account for just 7%. The largest department stores in the United States represent 44% of total sales in that segment. In China, just 6%. Despite massive construction of shopping malls, supermarkets, and corner stores, China's offline retail penetration is still extremely low. For every person in China, there are only six square feet of retail space, less than one quarter the space in the United States. China will likely never close the gap. Why should it? Traditional retail is hardly a paragon of efficiency. With the burdens of inventory and rental costs, offline stores are rapidly losing sales to online players in many product categories. In China today, some shop owners are too busy taking care of customers online to bother with those who actually wander into their store. Many vendors in China have simply dispensed with the shop entirely. Why rent an expensive space that is only open at most half of every day when your Taobao storefront is open 24-7? Nature abhors a vacuum, and in China, the Internet is filling the voids created by a legacy of state ownership and state planning. That's why shopping online in China is even more popular than in the West. Jack summed it up. In other countries, e-commerce is a way to shop. In China, it is a lifestyle. Taobao opened the door to online shopping in China, and Tmall has widened it even further. Taobao's early adopters were young, digital natives, 
but increasingly their parents and grandparents are buying online too. As the mix of people buying online has broadened, so has the mix of products. The most popular items on Alibaba's sites are shoes and clothing, ranging all the way up from socks and T-shirts to dresses costing tens of thousands of dollars. The day after the country's biggest television broadcast, the Spring Festival Gala on China Central Television, the dresses worn by the celebrities, or approximations of them, are already on sale on Alibaba's sites. Many storefronts feature photos of people, including the merchants themselves, modeling a wide range of body sizes to make it easy to buy online. Customers know that if the clothes don't fit or are defective, they can return them without charge. Groceries are another popular category because, as Jack explained, supermarkets in China were terrible. That's why we have come out on top. Already, more than 40% of Chinese consumers buy their groceries online, as compared to just 10% in the United States. In 2014, online grocery sales in China grew by half. Offline, they grew only 7%. Tmall offers grocery items in more than 250 cities in all but six of China's 32 mainland provinces, typically at cheaper prices than in a supermarket. Alibaba already offers next-day delivery of refrigerated items in more than 60 cities, and also features a wide range of imported foods. Working with the Washington State Apple Commission, Alibaba secured more than 84,000 individual orders for apples that were picked, packed, and freighted to customers in China within 72 hours, amounting to 167 metric tons. And equivalent in volume to the capacity of three Boeing 747s. Young mothers are a key customer base for Alibaba. James Shu, a representative from the Dutch infant formula company Friso, which was showcased by Alibaba on Singles Day 2015, said that for young mothers in China, e-commerce is not a channel; it's a lifestyle, an ecosystem. The group sold almost ten million dollars worth of products on Singles Day. By 6 a.m. alone, more than their 2014 total. Computers, communication products, and consumer electronics are popular items on Taobao, as are household goods, from hair dryers and microwave ovens to TVs and washing machines. Here, the impact on offline retailers has been especially dramatic. On Singles Day. Alibaba's sales of home appliances regularly exceed half of the annual sales of the country's largest consumer goods retailers. In August 2015, Alibaba acquired 20% of retailer Suning for 4.6 billion dollars, selling electronics and white goods as well as books and baby products. Suning operates more than 1,600 stores in almost 300 cities. The deal with Alibaba. Part of the growing omni-channel or online-to-offline (O2O) trend means that even if customers go to Suning merely to test out a product, the company can capture some of the revenue when they buy the item online. Alibaba sells automobiles online too. General Motors brands Chevrolet and Buick both operate stores on Tmall, where they also market interest-free auto loans. A critical competitive tool in a market that is already GM's largest. Automobiles are a popular category on Singles Day, 
as buyers can expect to score discounts as well as beneficial payment terms. Real estate is another category. The super-rich can browse lists of entire islands for sale in Canada, Fiji, or Greece. Taobao is famous for offering all sorts of outlandish items, too. One university student gained notoriety for offering earrings that featured dead mosquitoes. Like the insects, each pair is unique. Another vendor even sold bottled farts online. Taobao isn't just about products. Customers can also buy services, too. Artists and musicians find commissions on the site. The sheer variety of services on offer provides a revealing insight into China's fast-changing social mores. Young men can hire a fake girlfriend to attend social events or outsource a breakup with their real girlfriend to a specialist on Taobao. Wives worried about a straying husband can subscribe to a counseling service offering techniques to fend off a mistress. Busy young urbanites can hire surrogates on Taobao to visit their parents. To overcome a chronic lack of donors, Alibaba's group-buying site Jiuwa Swan even teamed up with sperm banks in seven provinces to entice qualified donors with an offer of more than $800. This is the going rate offline, but with the power of online marketing, more than 22,000 men had applied within 48 hours. Feel-good items such as cosmetics and jewelry are popular items on Taobao, too. Merchants are drawn to the category for commanding some of the highest margins for any product sold online. Today, an estimated 42% of skin care products in China are sold online, a number boosted by the wide availability of goods sold by merchants who have found a way to circumvent high import duties. Counterfeit goods are thought to be the world's largest illicit industry, more profitable by some estimates than the drug trade. Sales by merchants of pirated goods on Taobao helped boost the early popularity of the website and continue to be a bone of contention for brand owners. China's fake goods can be so high quality that they defy detection even by legitimate manufacturers, made by extra-shift production runs in the same plant as the real items typically using leftover materials. As workshop to the world, China is a big part of the piracy problem. But as it becomes the world's largest consumer base, it has to be part of the solution, too. Speaking at a fair for online merchants in Guangzhou, Jack once addressed these concerns. Are there any counterfeit products on Taobao? Of course there are. This is a complicated society. Taobao itself does not make fake products, but Taobao is providing some degree of convenience for those who make fake products. Taobao is a digital platform. Jack then urged the merchants who sell genuine products on Taobao to unite, enforce regulations, and kick out the merchants who sell fakes, telling them, We keep track of all of you who make and sell fake products. You will be punished. But Alibaba's efforts have not always convinced brand owners. In November 2011, the same month that Baidu was removed from its list, Taobao was added to the Notorious Markets List, published by the Office of the United States Trade Representative, USTR, America's chief trade negotiator. Inclusion on the Notorious Markets List not only threatened to damage Alibaba's reputation with merchants, 
but also complicated its plans for an IPO. In response, the company ramped up its efforts to weed out the largest traders of counterfeit items from Taobao, prompting a number of them to form an anti-Taobao alliance and march on Alibaba's offices in Hong Kong in protest. Alibaba also raised the bar for vendors selling on Tmall, increasing service charges and deposits, a move that triggered an angry response from thousands of merchants who accused Taobao of monopoly practices and marched on Alibaba's headquarters in Hangzhou. To appease the USTR, Alibaba also ramped up its lobbying efforts, and in December 2012, Taobao was removed from its list, although a number of U.S. software, clothing, and shoe manufacturers have continued since then to push for sanctions against Taobao to be reimposed. As the perennial tensions over piracy highlight, the sheer volume of goods on sale on its platforms means Alibaba has to strike a delicate balance between serving the interests of consumers and merchants as well as protecting its own reputation. Binding Alibaba even closer to buyers and sellers is the second edge of the Iron Triangle, logistics. The Logistics Edge On Singles Day 2015, orders placed on Alibaba's websites generated 467 million packages, requiring more than 1.7 million couriers and 400,000 vehicles to deliver the goods. China today has a veritable army of couriers, on foot, bicycles, electronic bikes, trucks, and trains. They are the unsung heroes of the country's e-commerce revolution. Chinese consumers spent more than $32 billion on the cost of package deliveries in 2014. The number increased by more than 40% in a year, but the volume is set to grow dramatically in the years ahead. On average, less than one package per month is delivered for every person in China. Without the low-cost delivery that the courier services provide, Alibaba would not be the giant it is today. To survive in a cutthroat industry, some of the courier firms have adopted clever methods to keep costs at rock bottom. In Shanghai, for instance, couriers shuttle back and forth on the subway, passing packages over the barriers to one another to avoid buying multiple tickets. But none of these couriers are employed by Alibaba itself. Most of the packages in China are delivered by private couriers. Where for-profit delivery services have yet to be rolled out, mostly in the countryside, China Post handles the rest. In 2005, Alibaba approached China Post proposing to work together on e-commerce. But Chief Strategy Officer Zhang Min recalled, Jack was laughed at. They actually told him to stick to his own business. They didn't believe in express delivery. China's courier companies saw the same opportunities that prompted companies like Wells Fargo to launch their own private parcel delivery and banking services during the California gold rush in the mid-19th century in response to the inefficiency of what was then the United States Post Office. In China, the e-commerce gold rush has stimulated the rise of more than 8,000 private courier firms, of which 20 major companies stand out. 
Alibaba's home province of Zhejiang is home also to most of China's largest courier companies. They play a critical role in delivering goods all over the country. Over half of the package delivery market in China is carried out by just four companies, known as the Three Tongs One Da, Shentong, STO Express, Yuantong, YTO Express, Zhongtong. ZTO Express and Yunda. Remarkably, all come from the same town, Tonglu, not far from Hangzhou. More than two thirds of their business comes from Taobao and Tmall. Together with two other smaller delivery companies, they are often referred to as the Tonglu Gang. The Tonglu Gang, along with a company called SF Express, have played a major role in Taobao's success. ZTO co-founder Lei Jianfa described the relationship. Delivery companies are a propeller. We are the strongest force driving Alibaba's fast development. Alibaba has invested, together with these companies and others, in a firm called China Smart Logistics, or Kainiao. The combined hauling force of the 15 logistics partners in Kainiao is staggering. Together, they handle more than 30 million packages a day and employ more than 1.5 million people across 600 cities. Kainiao is building a proprietary information platform that knits together logistics providers, warehouses, and distribution centers across the country. Alibaba owns 48% of Kainiao, which, with the involvement of the Tonglu Gang and other self-made billionaires from the province. Gives the company a distinctly Zhejiang flavor. The Zhejiang-born billionaire Shen Guojun is a major investor in Kainiao, and served as its inaugural CEO. Fosun, best known overseas for its purchase of Club Med, is a 10% shareholder. Fosun's chairman, Guo Guanshang, is also a native of Zhejiang. In December 2015. Guanshang was apparently detained for questioning by the Chinese authorities before being released several days later with no explanation, causing a sharp decline in Fosun's share price. When it was launched in 2013, Kainiao announced plans to invest more than 16 billion dollars by 2020 to develop the China Smart Logistics Network, comprising three networks: PeopleNet, GroundNet, and SkyNet. Kainiao has not merged the courier companies. Instead, its strategy is to integrate the data that each generates, focusing on data packets, not physical packages. The idea is that by sharing orders, delivery status, and customer feedback, each member company can improve efficiency and service quality while remaining separately owned. By investing in Kainiao, Alibaba aims to lock in vital relationships with its logistics partners. While finding outside investors to fund the expansion of the networks themselves, Kainiao neither owns the physical infrastructure of the networks nor employs the personnel who make the deliveries. Those assets are contributed by the consortium's members and partners, allowing Alibaba to pursue an asset light strategy. A lot is riding on this approach. Alibaba's principal e-commerce competitor, JD.com. Is pursuing an asset-heavy strategy, investing directly in its own logistics infrastructure. JD's mascot is Joy, a gray metallic dog, 
chosen no doubt to give symbolic chase to Tmall's black cat. Today, JD has built up the largest warehousing capacity of any e-commerce company in China, offering speedy delivery services, including same-day delivery, in 43 cities. JD.com runs a truly end-to-end -end system, controlling its own procurement, inventory, distribution, and warehouse systems, with goods delivered to customers by uniformed couriers riding JD-branded vehicles. With annual revenues topping $11 billion, JD has a growing share of the consumer e-commerce market. The company is especially strong in Tier 1 cities like Beijing and in product categories such as home appliances and electronics. Alibaba's investment in the electronics retailer Suning, which it watches warily, illustrates its concern. Both Alibaba and JD are vying to ensure deliveries in as little as two to three hours in a number of cities. Alibaba is attempting to build a whole new competitive playing field by harnessing data technology, including big data, the ability to analyze and drive business decisions from the huge volumes of information generated every day on its websites. On Singles Day, the delivery paths of most of the courier companies within the Kainiao network were analyzed and rerouted in the event of traffic jams. Alibaba justifies its investment in Kainiao by arguing that demand would otherwise have run ahead of the courier company's ability to deliver the packages. This is borne out by feedback from merchants selling major appliances, such as refrigerators, during Singles Day in 2015, who reported that less than 2% of the shipments handled by Kainiao arrived late or were damaged, compared to 15% of the shipments handled by other courier companies. From some 30 million packages on a typical day at present, Alibaba expects it will generate more than 100 million packages of orders a day by 2020. An estimated 30% of current delivery routes are inefficient or uneconomic. Like Amazon in the United States, Kainiao member companies are experimenting with deliveries by drone aircraft, although higher population density in China, especially in coastal areas, means this is not as big a priority as in the United States. In 2015, YTO, one of the Tonglu gang companies, ran a three-day trial involving deliveries of ginger tea by drone to a few hundred customers within one hour's flight of Alibaba's distribution centers in Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. For now, drones in China remain just a gimmick. Innovations in logistics, such as shaving off delivery times or cutting costs, are likely to be more incremental than revolutionary. Yet with Kainiao, Alibaba has shored up the most important asset of all, trust. Customers and merchants know they can count on the products getting to where they need to be on time. The Finance Edge The final edge in the Iron Triangle is finance. In financial services, Alibaba's most important asset is Alipay, its answer to PayPal. By far the most popular online payment tool in China, Alipay handles more than three-quarters of a trillion dollars a year in online transactions, three times the volume of PayPal, and one-third of the $2.5 trillion global online payments market. 
in the peak early minutes of Singles Day 2015, Alipay handled over 85,000 payments per second. As a form of escrow, Alipay diffuses trust throughout Alibaba's e-commerce empire. Consumers know that when they pay with Alipay, their accounts will be debited only when they have received and are satisfied with the products they have ordered. Only then, after freezing the amount on the account, will Alipay release the funds to the merchant. Customers buying on Alibaba's consumer sites can return goods up to seven days after purchase, provided they are not damaged. No longer owned by Alibaba, Alipay is the largest asset of a company, controlled personally by Jack, which has been valued by one analyst at $45 billion. Alibaba websites account for more than one-third of its revenues, but other sites also rely heavily on Alipay to process their online payments. People use Alipay to make money transfers, top up their cell phone accounts, and make cashless purchases using barcodes at retailers and restaurants like KFC. 20% of all Alipay transactions involve paying for utilities, such as water, electricity, and gas bills. Customers can also buy train tickets, pay traffic fines, or purchase insurance using Alipay, making it the de facto currency of an increasingly digital China. Thanks to commissions on payments it handles, Alipay, which is already highly profitable, is expected to generate almost $5 billion a year in revenues by 2018. With the growth of smartphones in China, used by more than 830 million people, the value of Alipay goes far beyond that of a simple payment tool. Because consumers keep cash balances on their accounts, Alipay has become a virtual wallet for over 300 million people, the thin end of a wedge that Alibaba is driving into China's financial services market. In the same way Alibaba has exploited the inefficiency of offline retail, offline banking has proved a ripe fruit for it to pick. Just as state-owned shops paid little interest in their customers, China's state-owned banks paid little heed to the needs of individuals and small businesses. Until recently, they had no choice but to place their cash deposits with the banks that were focused on state-owned enterprises. The political masters of the SOEs are also their own. The big four state-owned banks, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, ICBC, Construction Bank, Bank of China, and Agricultural Bank of China, control about 70% of the market. The disdain of these banks for their customers has fueled popular jokes, such as the one about ICBC's initials standing for, in Chinese, Aikan Bukana, translated loosely as, Who cares if you say with us or not? Whatever. Traditionally, these and other state-owned banks paid out very low rates of interest, at times below the rate of inflation. This financial repression has skewed China's economy transferring wealth from consumers to the SOEs, which have squandered much of it in the loss-making investments of the old China model. The Chinese government recognizes the need for reform and the need for more rational capital allocation, but to do so, it has to take on a powerful vested interest itself. Alibaba has already been caught in the middle. Offering much higher returns on deposits than the meager returns paid by the banks, 
Alibaba's Yue Bao online mutual fund proved so popular when it launched in 2013 that it stirred China's stagnant financial service industry into a frenzy of activity. Yue Bao, whose name translates in English as "savings balance treasure," sounds innocuous enough—a place to deposit your loose change. But when it launched the product, Alibaba set no limits on the amount customers could deposit. Not only were the rates it offered much higher than the banks, as much as two percentage points higher, but Yue Bao allowed customers to make withdrawals at any time without penalty. As a result, individual customers transferred tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars into the fund. The banks became alarmed at the outflows. By February 2014, Yue Bao had attracted over 93 billion dollars from 80 million investors, more than the combined total accounts of all other money managers in China. The inflow was so huge that in only 10 months, Yue Bao was ranked the fourth largest money manager in the world, closing in on global industry stalwarts such as Vanguard, Fidelity, and J.P. Morgan. Prior to the fund's launch. Jack took the unusual step for a private sector entrepreneur of penning an opinion piece in the Communist Party journal People's Daily, arguing the finance industry needs disruptors. It needs outsiders to come in and carry out a transformation. Soon after, the SOE empire struck back, denouncing the fund managers behind Yue Bao as vampires sucking blood out of the banks. Starting in March 2014, the state-owned banks, holding collectively more than $100 trillion in deposits, imposed limits on the amounts their customers could transfer into third-party online payment accounts. Other government-imposed restrictions followed soon after. Pulling no punches, Jack posted a message on social media criticizing the banks by name. And blaming them for failing to participate in China's market-oriented financial liberalization, the decision of who wins and who loses in the market shouldn't be up to a monopoly and authority, but up to customers. Jack deleted it soon after, but the message was reposted widely. Alibaba has continued to push the boundaries of private sector involvement in financial services. Including providing micro loans to the merchants and consumers trading on its platforms. Still relatively new, the lending business is expected to grow into a billion-dollar business within a few years. Offering credit also increases the stickiness or loyalty from customers of Alibaba's e-commerce platforms. Because it has access to the entire trading history of its customers. Alibaba is in a much better position to assess credit risk than the banks. A new business, Sesame Credit Management, provides credit ratings on consumers and merchants to third parties. Other financial service offerings include wealth management, peer-to-peer -peer lending businesses, and insurance. In 2015, Jack launched an internet-only bank called MyBank, which gets rid of the need for branches entirely. My bank plans to use smartphones to authenticate customers' identities. The Iron Triangle is a key factor in making Alibaba such a dominant player in China's e-commerce market, but it is the charisma of the company's founder, his Jack Magic, that bound together the people and capital who would build on these foundations.
Chapter 2 Jack Magic Come up with an idea, make it fun, and breathe something into it which otherwise is still just an idea. That's Jack Magic. Jan Vanderven Most companies bear the imprint of their founders, but few more than Alibaba. Jack Ma's outsized influence stems from his passion for teaching. Although he left the profession two decades ago, Jack has never really stopped being an educator. He used to joke that, in his case, CEO stood for Chief Education Officer. Fourteen years after founding the company, Jack relinquished the title to become chairman, but the switch served only to heighten his authority. His chosen successor as CEO lasted barely two years in the job. E.T. Jack is, without a doubt, the face of Alibaba. Short and thin, Jack has been described in the media over the years as an imp of a man, a tiny figure with sunken cheekbones, tussled hair, and a mischievous grin. His looks owlish, puckish, or elfish. Jack has turned his distinctive looks to his advantage. At the launch of MyBank, which aims to sign up customers exclusively through facial recognition technology, Alibaba showcased the fact that Jack, who had been unable to live off his face, was now going to live off his face. Some in China like to refer to Jack as E.T., after a supposed resemblance to the lead creature in the Steven Spielberg movie. Even his Zhejiang-born billionaire friend Guo Guangxiang has called Jack an alien, but only before dismissing himself as just a normal guy. No one is as smart as Jack Ma. So, Jack doesn't look the part of a corporate chieftain. He possesses all the trappings, including luxury homes around the world and a Gulfstream jet, but otherwise Jack doesn't really act the part either. One of the most circulated images of Jack on the Internet is a photo of him sporting a mohawk, nose ring, and makeup, including jet-black lipstick. On that occasion, a celebration of Alibaba's 10th anniversary, Jack sang Elton John's Can You Feel the Love Tonight to a stadium full of 17,000 cheering employees and 10,000 other spectators. Jack combines a love of showmanship with a relish for defying stereotypes. Where other business moguls like to talk up their connections or academic credentials, Jack enjoys talking down his own. I don't have a rich or powerful father, not even a powerful uncle. Having never studied abroad, he likes to describe himself as 100% made in China. He stands out as a tech company founder with no background in technology. At Stanford University in 2013, he confessed, Even today, I still don't understand what coding is all about. I still don't understand the technology behind the Internet. Jack has made a career out of being underestimated. I am a very simple guy. I am not smart. Everyone thinks that Jack Ma is a very smart guy. I might have a smart face, but I've got very stupid brains. Blarney meets chutzpah in China. His achievements have proved otherwise. This dumbing down is, of course, just a feint. Jack once explained that he loves the lead character of the movie Forrest Gump because people think he is dumb, but he knows what he is doing. 
In his early speeches promoting Alibaba, Jack referred so often to Forrest Gump that I came to think of his stump speech as his Gump speech. Much has changed for Alibaba, but Gump's appeal endures. On the first day of trading of Alibaba's shares, Jack was interviewed by CNBC live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. When he was asked which person had most inspired him, Jack replied without hesitation, Forrest Gump. His interviewer paused, then said, You know he's a fictional character. Jack's ability to charm and cajole has played an important role in attracting talent and capital to the company, as well as building his own fame. Jack has a unique Chinese combination of blarney and chutzpah. One of his earliest foreign employees summed up for me his qualities in two words, Jack Magic. In this respect, Jack shares a characteristic with Steve Jobs, whose charisma and means of getting his way were famously described by a member of the original Apple Macintosh design team as a reality distortion field. Central to Jack's own distortion field are his skills as a communicator. Jack's speaking style is so effective because his message is so easy to agree with, remember, and digest. Collections of his quotes circulate widely online, in English as well as in Chinese. Most are bite-sized messages of inspiration, words that wouldn't be out of place on a motivational poster, such as, Believe in your dream and believe in yourself, or Learn from others the tactics and the skills, but don't change your dream. Other popular quotes read more like an Aesop fable. If there are nine rabbits on the ground, if you want to catch one, just focus on one. Change your tactics if you need to, but don't change the rabbit. Get one first, put it in your pocket, and then catch the others. People have even taken to inventing carpe diem-style quotes from Jack to justify, for example, the purchase of a pair of expensive shoes. Jack always speaks without notes. His oratorical skills are so effective because his repertoire is so narrow. Jack can dispense with notes because he already knows much of his material, a well-honed stable of stock stories, mostly tales from his childhood or Alibaba's own infancy. A close inspection of all of his speeches reveals he has essentially been giving the same speech for the last seventeen years. Yet, by subtly tweaking his message to match the mood and expectations of the crowd, he somehow manages to make each speech sound fresh. Jack is a master at appealing to people's emotions, which is not something you'd expect from the founder of a company that started out focusing on international trade. Sometimes, as he's launched into a familiar story, I have turned around to look at the faces of the audience, trying to understand what explains his enduring appeal. Humor is a big part of it. As a quick look at any of the hundreds of videos available on YouTube of his most popular speeches will reveal, Jack is very funny. Back in the early days, after he came off stage at an event we'd both spoken at, I joked to him that if his day job at Alibaba didn't work out, he had a promising career as a stand-up comedian. Jack's set pieces, his one-liners and anecdotes, and the way he combines them are essentially the same as the bits that comedians use to make up their routines. With his tales of overcoming challenges and defying the odds, Jack regularly drives some in his audience to tears, even hardened business executives. 
After giving a talk to a group of students in South Korea, Jack himself appeared to be consumed by emotion when asked about the biggest regrets in life, replying that he regretted not spending more time with his family. After composing himself, he added, Normally, I make other people cry. Jack's speeches, like that one in Seoul, reach a much wider audience than speeches by many public figures in China, in part because he is able to deliver them in fluent English. Other tech executives in China speak English, too, many having been educated overseas, but Jack's message has much greater resonance in both languages. Jack's long-term business partner, Zhou Tsai, told me, Jack today is still one of the only international business people who is as attention-grabbing in both English and Chinese. To build a connection to foreign audiences, Jack often peppers his speeches with pop culture references, including citing more recent movies than Forrest Gump, some of which Alibaba is now financing. As his company expands its presence in Hollywood, Jack now regularly enlists the support at his public appearances of famous actors like Daniel Craig, Kevin Spacey, and Tom Cruise, the star of Paramount Pictures' Mission Impossible franchise. In 2015, Alibaba invested in Rogue Nation, the franchise's latest title. To audiences in China, Jack often draws on stories from his favorite martial arts novels or Chinese revolutionary history. An American colleague once asked Jack about his references to Mao in his speeches in China. Jack explained, For me to motivate you, I would talk about George Washington and the cherry tree. Jack's Mantra Perhaps the most famous lesson of Jack the Teacher is known by heart by every Alibaba employee. Customers first, employees second, and shareholders third. Jack describes this as Alibaba's philosophy. Customers, especially the shrimp, come first in his mantra. When asked by the journalist Charlie Rose if he saw himself as an apostle for small business, Jack agreed. I'm a strong believer. It's my religion. Many small businesses in China don't just use Alibaba's websites as a marketing channel. They depend entirely on them to make a living. Jack has always insisted on offering most of Alibaba's services for free. Employees may come second to customers for Jack, but an ability to motivate his team to overcome obstacles has been critical to Alibaba's success. Zhou Tsai didn't hesitate in describing them to me as disciples when recalling his first impression in 1999 of Alibaba's earliest employees, some of whom had already followed Jack for years. Jack doesn't sugarcoat the challenges to his employees. One of his favorite messages to them, and a bit in his comedy routine, is, Today is brutal. Tomorrow is more brutal. But the day after tomorrow is beautiful. However, the majority of people will die tomorrow night. The goal for Alibaba to survive for 102 years might seem weird to outsiders, but not to his employees, especially the Aliren, the Ali people, those with more than three years of service, for whom it is an accepted part of the Alibaba culture. Shareholders come third in Jack's ranking because he refuses to be diverted from his lofty ambitions by short-term pressures to generate profit. In public, Jack likes to make fun of his shareholders and investors, 
a means to burnish his credentials as a maverick with his employees and the general public. When the share price of Alibaba's first business, Alibaba.com, languished on the stock market in 2009, Jack cried out at the rock concert-style gathering for the company's employees, Let the Wall Street investors curse us if they wish. Not exactly standard behavior for the senior executive of a publicly listed company. Yet, despite the populist rhetoric, Jack has assiduously created opportunities at regular intervals, on average every four years or so, for employees and long-term shareholders to turn a profit from the sale of their shares. Investors who supported Alibaba early on and stuck with the company for years have been richly rewarded, much less so those public investors who purchased the company's shares in their post-IPO peak. Company Campus and Culture Jack's imprint can also be seen in the design of Alibaba's 2.6 million square foot Wetlands Headquarters campus. From the main south gate, visitors enter a massive complex of futuristic glass towers. At the base of the office towers lie a large gym, Starbucks, and a country-style store stocked with organic fruit and vegetables that could be straight out of Silicon Valley. Farther to the north lies a huge man-made lake dotted with lotuses and lily pads and bordered with reeds. The lake is overlooked on one side by a cluster of elegant white-walled villas topped with curved, black-tiled roofs, a scene reminiscent of Jack's much-loved classical novels, like the 16th-century work The Water Margin. The lake reflects Jack's newfound passion for environmental protection. When asked by President Obama in Manila what spurred his interest in the environment, Jack told the story of a lake in which he had last swam when he was twelve years old. I went to swim in a lake and almost died in the lake because the water was so deep, much deeper than I thought. Five years ago, I went to the lake. The total lake was dry. On a visit in the spring of 2015 to the campus, I had to step gingerly to avoid squashing the tiny baby frogs that had hopped out of the man-made lake onto the walkway leading to the office towers. On my way, I also stopped by Alibaba's large library and bookstore. Jack is a keen reader, particularly of titles by the Hong Kong-born martial arts writer Louis Cha Lung Yung, known in China by his pen name Jin Yong. His works are featured in the library along with classical works, and the latest books on management theory, or Silicon Valley icons like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. But beyond the design of the campus, it is in the culture of Alibaba that we can most clearly see the influence of its principal founder. To zip around the wetlands headquarters complex, Alibaba's employees make frequent use of the free bicycles the company provides, a perk no doubt inspired by Google's fleet, which is decked out in the U.S. giant's signature blue, yellow, green, and red colors. The bicycles at Alibaba are orange and include tandems, the two seats illustrating the company's emphasis on teamwork above individual achievement. A sense of subjugating one's own needs for the interest of the customer is a cornerstone of Alibaba's corporate culture. Just as Disney refers to all of its executives and employees as cast members, Alibaba places a big emphasis on camaraderie and a commitment to the greater good. Every May 10th, around the time of the annual 
Alley Day, a company anniversary that celebrates the spirit of teamwork shown by the company's employees as they emerged from the specter of the SARS virus, Jack presides as chief witness over a ceremony to celebrate recent weddings of company employees. Alibaba covers the lodging and meal expenses of the immediate family members who are invited to join. The photos of a hundred-plus couples celebrating their matrimonials together at one company has inevitably invited comparisons to cults, such as Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church. But Alibaba takes pains to point out that the evening is just a celebration, not a replacement of the couple's official marriage registrations. A more tangible benefit for the couples and other Alibaba employees is the interest-free loan of up to $50,000 offered to finance the down payment on a new apartment, an increasingly valued perk for staff members working in high-cost cities like Hangzhou and Beijing. Thousands of employees have taken advantage of the loans, amounting to several hundred million dollars today. Alibaba encourages a sense of informality at work. Every employee is asked to adopt a nickname. The practice is so widespread that it can invite confusion when they have to search to find out the actual names of their colleagues to communicate to people outside the company. Initially, the nicknames were drawn from characters in the novels of Jin Yong or other stories of martial arts and bygone eras. As Alibaba grew, this pool of names was soon exhausted. Using their nicknames, employees post comments about the company's products or culture on Aliway, the company's internal bulletin board. They can even initiate polls or invite the support of their colleagues to dispute assessments or management decisions and address suggestions and complaints directly to Feng Qinyang. That is the name of Jack's online persona, a swordsman from one of his favorite martial arts novels. Employees are discouraged from ever complaining, a pet peeve of Jack's, and encouraged instead to shoulder personal responsibility, carrying out or delegating tasks rather than waiting for orders from on high. Military terms crop up a lot at Alibaba. Top-performing individuals at Alibaba are known as King of Soldiers, Bin Wang. Fictional character Zhu Zanduo is sometimes used to illustrate management's message. In the 2007 TV drama Soldier's Sortie, Zhu, a shy village boy, rises despite the odds to become an elite soldier in the People's Liberation Army. Six Vein Spirit Sword Alibaba has codified its own company values in something it calls the Six Vein Spirit Sword. The term originates in the work of Jack's favorite novelist, Jin Yong. The sword he writes about is not an actual weapon, but the art of building up one's own internal strengths in order to defeat any opponent. In Alibaba's case, the strengths that form the Six Vein Spirit Sword are akin to those outlined in the Mission, Vision, and Values of Jack's favorite corporate guru, Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric, GE. Welch's 2005 book, Winning, recommends an almost messianic culture in the workplace. Leaders make sure people not only see the vision, they live and breathe it. Jack Ma has always held GE in high regard. The six veins of Alibaba's spirit sword are customer first, 
teamwork, embrace change, integrity, passion, and commitment. Generic sounding as they are, the company treats them very seriously. Commitment to the six-vein spirit sword accounts for half of employee appraisals. Customer first is reflected in the power given to Taobao's Shaoar referees and in the composition of Alibaba's workforce. Most of Alibaba employees work in sales, a much higher proportion than the more technical bent of competitors like Tencent and Baidu. Face-to-face -face visits are a key part of Alibaba's sales methods. Teamwork at Alibaba means regular group games, songs, and outings. These can come as quite a culture shock to employees joining Alibaba from firms based in Silicon Valley. But for those fresh out of college, the system of apprentices and mentors is well received, including the routine of holding regular meetings to kick off in the morning and share in the evening. One former employee summed it up. Lots of companies focus only on results. You have to complete a certain number of orders. Alibaba takes the opposite approach. If you want to complete a certain number of orders this month, what do you need to do every day? By breaking it down into phases, each day could be dedicated to one key step in the process, and eventually you wouldn't be far off from your goal. Recognition of high performers in company-wide announcements helps too, as do the prizes awarded to the A-teams. Lao A, a military reference, ranging from Louis Vuitton wallets, belts, and limited-edition sneakers to monthly bonuses of tens of thousands of yuan, or even a car. The call to embrace change is reflected in Alibaba's frequent rotation of its employees, switching them regularly between various new products or between regions of the country, regardless of performance. This creates lots of challenges, but Alibaba asks its employees to embrace setbacks, a radical departure from traditional Chinese culture where failure is seen as something shameful. Alibaba's approach is in line with the Silicon Valley practice of entrepreneurs celebrating previous failed ventures on their T-shirts, a recognition that on the fast-moving battle lines of the China Internet, some failure is unavoidable or even desirable. The integrity vein of the sword highlights the fact that corruption is a constant risk for Alibaba. Millions of merchants are constantly looking for ways to promote their wares on Taobao, overseen by only a few thousand Shaoar referees. The Communist Party of China regularly uses rotation of personnel to avoid alternative centers of power from developing in an effort to keep corruption under control. David Wei, who served as the CEO of Alibaba.com, experienced Jack's penchant for rotation even before he had joined the company. In the nine months between leaving his previous employer and joining Alibaba, David recalled, My job description and titles changed four times before I joined. First, I was going to be head of Taobao, then head of Alipay. I didn't know what I was doing until one month before I was on board. Once he finally joined as CEO of Alibaba's B2B business, David joked to Jack, You changed my job so many times before I joined you couldn't change it anymore. Whatever the inspiration for regular rotation, Alibaba devolves a lot of autonomy to its business units, an effort to maintain a relatively flat management hierarchy 
and minimize the temptation to shame and blame. The need to demonstrate passion when working for Alibaba was summed up by one employee as, Being a swordsman is all about being hot-blooded. Compared to other firms, people at Alibaba are more passionate about their work, more honest, and more hard-working. Jack's emphasis on commitment is reflected in his frequent invocation of the phrase to work happily but live seriously. The whimsical approach he encourages at Alibaba is, he says, in stark contrast to most companies who emphasize working seriously but living happily. Measuring up how employees live up to the six-vein spirit sword is the job of Alibaba's Human Resources Department, which plays a critical role overseeing the hiring of 12,000 people in one year alone. Relegated in some companies to a purely administrative function, HR at Alibaba has tremendous power over promotions and hiring. With its constant emphasis on culture and ideology, people at Alibaba refer to HR informally as the political commissar, Zhang Wei. The HR department also oversees extensive training, with manuals of more than 1,000 pages for new employees and a sophisticated database, matching performance closely with promotions and pay raises. The culture of Alibaba endures even in the employees who have left the company, who number over 25,000 given the long history and rapid growth of the company. Many have banded together in a non-profit organization called the Former Orange Club, Qiang Chenghui, to help its members share investment opportunities and career advice. One member, Hu Zhe, who left Alibaba in 2010 after working there for five years, described his reason for joining. Former Alibaba employees are closely connected, as if there is a bond linking us together. The club serves as a very important platform for us to communicate and exchange ideas. A number of members have founded their own Internet companies or investment vehicles, some of which have established links with one another, active in a range of sectors, including e-commerce, online travel booking, Internet financial services, online music, online recruiting, O2O, venture capital, and healthcare. A search in a database of Chinese Internet-related startups reveals that former Alibaba employees have been associated with 317 startups, compared to 294 from Tencent and 223 from Baidu. While not all of these startups will be successful, indeed, some of them have already failed, the web of entrepreneurial activity is important both as a source of future innovation and acquisition targets for Alibaba. A common thread in many of the ventures founded by Alibaba veterans is what some have described as a long-march culture, an ambitious management ethos that involves personal sacrifice and huge investments of personnel and time. In contrast, in their new businesses, the veterans of Alibaba's rivals, such as Tencent, are known to focus more on reducing time to market, launching products that they can perfect later, an approach some refer to as running with short steps. Alibaba has been a team effort from the start. Jack doled out much more equity and at an earlier stage than many of his Internet founder peers. But he has kept a firm control on the company through his gift for communicating and his lofty ambitions. A modern-day Don Quixote, J. 
Jack relishes tilting at windmills, from retail to finance to entertainment, health care, and beyond. To gain a sense of how likely Alibaba is to conquer these new horizons, let's look at the events that made Jack and the company what they are today. Chapter 3 From Student to Teacher If you are one in a million in China, you're one of 1,300 people. Bill Gates Barrow Boy Jack Ma was born on September 10, 1964, the year of the dragon, in Hangzhou, a city 100 miles to the southwest of Shanghai. His parents named him Yun, meaning cloud. His surname, Ma, is the same as the Chinese word for horse. Jack's mother, Sui Wensai, worked on a factory production line. His father, Ma Laifa, worked as a photographer at the Hangzhou Photography Agency. But both share a passion for pintan, a form of Chinese folk art performance that involves the singing of ballads and comedic routines punctuated by the sound of wooden clappers. Exposure to the art form may help explain Jack's abilities as a communicator. Pintan no doubt provided Jack's parents a welcome escape from the hard-scrabble life of post-revolution China, a window to a richer and more colorful past. A future icon of Chinese entrepreneurship, Jack came into the world at a time when private enterprise had almost been completely extinguished. Ninety percent of industrial production had been taken into the hands of the state. China was alone in the world, struggling to recover from the Great Leap Forward. Faced with the starvation of millions across the country, Mao Zedong had been forced to make a self-criticism and was relegated to the margins of power. Deng Xiaoping was among those tasked with reversing the most damaging aspects of collectivization, a foreshadowing of the pivotal role he would play in unleashing the country's economic miracle, which, two decades later, would provide the opening for Jack's entrepreneurial career. But when Jack was two, Mao was back in power, and China was subjected to the ravages of the Cultural Revolution. Mao launched an attack on the Four Olds, old customs, culture, habits, and ideas, and Red Guards marched to destroy cultural sites and antiquities, including in Hangzhou, where they attacked and badly damaged the tomb of Yue Fei, a famous Song Dynasty general. But even the Red Guards were not immune to the charms of the city, taking breaks from their violence with boat trips on West Lake. Mao himself developed a strong attachment to Hangzhou, visiting it on more than forty occasions and staying up to seven months at a time. He enjoyed performances of Pintan. Despite Mao's fondness for the art form in private, old customs like Pintan became a target of the Red Guards, and its practitioners were denounced. Jack's family was at risk of persecution, particularly as his grandfather had been a local official under the nationalist KMT government. During the Cultural Revolution, Jack was taunted by his classmates, although fortunately the family was not broken up like many were at the time. In February 1972, President Nixon traveled to Hangzhou as part of his historic visit to China to meet Mao. Nixon was accompanied on the trip by almost 100 reporters, including Walter Cronkite, Dan Rather, 
Ted Koppel, and Barbara Walters, their live broadcasts generating support for the normalization of relations with China, leading eventually to cities like Hangzhou re-emerging as a destination for foreign tourists. As a boy, Jack fell in love with the English language and literature, particularly readings of Mark Twain's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer that he listened to on a shortwave radio. Later, it was the arrival of foreign tourists in China that provided Jack with his opening to the outside world. In late 1978, when Jack was 14, China launched the new Open Door Policy, initiated by Deng Xiaoping in pursuit of foreign trade and investment. After a decade of turmoil, the country was on the verge of bankruptcy and desperately needed hard currency. In 1978, only 728 foreign tourists visited Hangzhou. But the following year, more than 40,000 came to the city. Jack relished any opportunity to practice his English. He started waking up before dawn and riding his bicycle for 40 minutes to the Hangzhou Hotel to greet foreign tourists. As he recalled, Every morning from 5 o'clock, I would read English in front of the hotel. A lot of foreign visitors came from the USA, from Europe. I'd give them a free tour of West Lake, and they taught me English. For nine years. And I practiced my English every morning, no matter if it snowed or rained. An American tourist whose father and husband were named Jack suggested the name, and Ma Yun became known in English henceforth as Jack. He is dismissive of the quality of his English. I just make myself understood. The grammar is terrible. But Jack never dismisses how much learning the language has helped him in life. English helps me a lot. It makes me understand the world better, helps me to meet the best CEOs and leaders in the world, and makes me understand the distance between China and the world. Among the many tourists who came to Hangzhou in 1980 was an Australian family the Morleys. Ken Morley, a recently retired electrical engineer, had signed up for a tour of China offered by the local branch of the Australia-China Friendship Society. He took along his wife, Judy, and their three children, David, Stephen, and Susan, for whom it would be their first overseas trip. For Jack, their visit would change his life. Today, David runs a yoga studio in Australia where I managed to track him down. He kindly shared his memories and the photos of his family's visit to China and their enduring friendship with Jack. On July 1, 1980, the Morley's Australian tour group arrived by plane in Hangzhou from Beijing and was transferred by bus to the Shangri-La Hotel on West Lake, the same hotel, then the Hangzhou Hotel, where President Nixon and his entourage had stayed eight years earlier. David recalls being shown the suite where the first couple had stayed, allocated to their tour leader, complete with plush red velvet toilet seats, which we three children were fascinated by. The next day, the Australian group's itinerary included a boat trip on West Lake, followed by a visit to the nearby tea plantations, and on to the Liuhe, Six Harmonies Pagoda, before returning to the hotel for dinner at 6.30 p.m. Taking advantage of the free evening, David and a young woman named Kiva, whom he had befriended on the trip, snuck across the road from the hotel to the park opposite, overlooking West Lake. There they proceeded to play with matches, practicing the art of 
match-flicking that she had taught him. This involves standing a match upside down with its head on the striking surface and flicking it with your fingers and watching it spiral off to, David recalls, hopefully an uneventful extinguishment. Fortunately that day, the park didn't catch fire. But David and Kiva's antics did catch the attention of a 15-year-old boy, Jack Ma. David recalls, It was on that free evening, flicking matches in the park, that I was approached by a young man wanting to try his newly acquired English skills on me. He introduced himself, we swapped pleasantries, and agreed to meet in the park again. On July 4th, their last day in Hangzhou, David introduced Jack to his sister, Susan, and invited him and some other local children to play frisbee with them in the park. David described the scene to me. Marking out a playing area with shoes and other items, we were soon surrounded by hundreds of Chinese spectators. Jack's father, Ma Laifa, took photos of the game. David's father, Ken Morley, once described his first impressions of Jack as a barrow boy or a street hawker. He really wanted to practice his English, and he was very friendly. Our kids were very impressed. David described how the family stayed in touch. What followed that meeting was a pen-pal relationship that I kept up for a few years until my father started to take an interest in helping this young man. Jack would correspond regularly with Ken, referring to him as Dad, who asked him to double-space his letters so that any corrections could be sent back in the spaces. David explained, the original with corrections was returned for learning purposes with the reply letter. I believe this greatly helped and encouraged Jack to continue with his English studies. Armed with his improving English, rich knowledge of the history of the area, and a knack for storytelling, Jack embraced the opportunity to show more foreign tourists around the sites of West Lake. He relished visiting Hangzhou's tea houses, where locals would play Chinese chess and cards and recount tall tales. Jack would often accompany his grandmother to Buddhist temples to burn incense and worship the gods. He developed a passion for Tai Chi and reading The Water Margin, a classic Chinese tale that features 108 heroes, the number of employees he later would set as an early headcount target for Alibaba. But by far, his favorite works are those of Hong Kong author Louis Cha, who writes under the pen name Jin Yong. Born in Zhejiang province in 1924, Jin Yong co-founded in 1959 the Hong Kong newspaper Min Pao, which published many of his early works. In total, he authored 15 novels, all in the wuxia genre, which blends historical and fictional tales of martial arts and chivalry. Jin Yong is highly popular in the Chinese-speaking world. Worldwide sales of his books have topped 100 million copies. There have been more than 90 television series and film adaptations of his work. Set between the 6th century B.C. and the 18th century, Jin Yang's works contain strong elements of Chinese patriotism, pitting heroic peoples against northern invaders such as the Mongols and Manchus. Yi Zhongtian, a well-known writer and a professor at Xiamen University, summarized the popular appeal of traditional stories and martial arts as follows. 
In traditional Chinese society, people have three dreams. The first is a wise emperor. People hope to have a good leader so that they can have peace in the country. The second dream is clean officials. If there are no clean officials, then comes the third dream, chivalrous heroes. People hope that the heroes could stand for them, kill the greedy officials, and bring justice back to the society. However, if there are no heroes, people can only seek comfort from martial arts fiction. That's why many Chinese people like kung fu novels. Jin Yong's writing is suffused with traditional elements of Chinese culture and arts, as well as Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism. Jack found inspiration in Jin Yong's legendary warrior Feng Qingyang. Feng was a teacher. His martial arts moves were never performed to any set plan. In his own practice of martial arts, Jack was trained in Tai Chi by a woman in her seventies who, according to Chen Wei, a former student of Jack's who is now his personal assistant, was so skilled that she could defend herself against two or three younger men. Every morning she would close her eyes to meditate before practicing Tai Chi, listening to the sound of flowers blooming. Today Jack often travels with a personal Tai Chi coach. But these skills were of little use against one of Jack's earliest foes, math. In China, all high school students hoping to go on to higher education have to pass a merit-based national higher education entrance exam, commonly known as the Gaokao, literally the high test. The Gaokao takes place over two or three days. Math, along with Chinese and a foreign language, is mandatory. The Gaokao is widely seen as one of the most challenging in the world, requiring a huge amount of preparation and memorization. Today, there is growing criticism of the exam's negative social consequences, including depression and suicide. Jack took the Gaokao, but failed badly, scoring one out of 120 in math. His hopes crushed. He took to menial labor, delivering heavy bundles of magazines from printers to the Hangzhou train station on a pedicab, a job Jack managed to land thanks only to his father's connections. Jack was rejected from numerous other jobs, including as a waiter in a hotel. He was told he was not tall enough. Chen Wei relates in his biography of Jack, This is Still Ma Yun, how his boss found inspiration in the book Life written by the Chinese author Lu Yao. Published in 1982 and made into a film in 1984, the book relates the story of Gao Jialin, a talented man living in a village. Gao struggles but ultimately fails to escape the clutches of poverty. Jack resolved to have a different fate and took the Gao Kao again. This time his math score improved slightly to 19 out of 120, but his overall score dropped considerably. Jack once again set about applying for jobs to make ends meet. He sent out eleven job applications, but all met with rejection. Jack likes to tell the story of how even KFC turned him away, the only one of twenty-four candidates they didn't like. Undeterred, Jack became a regular every Sunday at the library of Zhurjiang University where he committed to memory the formulas and equations he would have to master to pass the test. 
Jack never gained admission to a prestigious university in Beijing or Shanghai. But in 1984, when he was 19, he raised his math score sufficiently to win acceptance to a local university, the Hangzhou Teachers College. On his third attempt at the Gaokao, he scored 89 in math. His score was several points below the normal acceptance rate at other universities for a full four-year undergraduate degree. Normally, he would have been relegated to a two- to three-year associate's degree course, but Hangzhou Teachers College had a few spaces left for male students, and Jack squeaked in. The college was not a prestigious one. Jack recalled that it was considered the third or fourth class of my city. In his public appearances, Jack often speaks of his twice-failing the Gaokao as a badge of honor. Teacher In his sophomore year, Jack was elected president of the school's student union, where he launched a top-ten campus singers competition and was later president of the Hangzhou Students' Federation. In 1985, Jack also received an invitation from Ken Morley, to stay with his family at their home in New Lambton, Australia, a suburb of Newcastle in New South Wales. It was the first time Jack had left China. He stayed for a month and returned a changed man. Everything I'd learned in China was that China was the richest country in the world, Jack later said. When I arrived in Australia, I realized it was totally different. I started to think you have to use your own mind to judge, to think. Jack has never shown any hint of shyness toward foreigners. During his trip to Australia, Jack gave a demonstration to a local Tai Chi group gathered in a suburban hall, showing off his skills at monkey and drunken-style kung fu. I'd often request he do his drunken boxing routine. It was great to watch, Stephen Morley recalls. Jack's friendship with the Morleys blossomed. After Jack's trip to Australia, Ken Morley made a return visit to Hangzhou with Stephen. As the Ma family home was too small to host guests, Jack arranged accommodations at a student college for the Morleys. We would have dinner at the Ma household and cycle to the college after dinner, Stephen recalls. Jack would always help prepare and cook dinner, always making us feel special. During their holiday, Jack planned a trip out to the countryside for his two Australian friends, and they got their fair share of Chinese adventures. For transportation, Jack secured the use of a pickup truck. He and the driver sat up front in the cab, while Ken and Stephen sat on two loose chairs that Jack had placed on the open-top cargo bed. On their way out of Hangzhou one day, the driver had to brake suddenly to avoid a cyclist who had fallen off his bike— sending Ken and Stephen hurtling forward into the rear of the cab. Fortunately, they escaped injury. Back in town later that evening, Jack arranged a banquet for his Australian friends with some local officials and VIPs, looking out over a street below where a festival was taking place. Stephen recalls, I'd never seen so many people congested in one place. It became clear then that Jack was a bit of a networker, Organizing a vehicle and a dinner with the mayor required connections. Back in Hangzhou, Jack's university life was not carefree. Money concerns were pressing. Once again, Ken Morley stepped in to help. 
While the tuition at the college was free, the compulsory live-in fees were beyond the means of Jack's family. When we came back to Australia, we thought about it, Morley recalled, and decided we could help. It was not much, five to ten dollars a week, I think, so I would send him a check every six months. At Hangzhou Teachers College, Jack met and fell in love with Zhang Ying, a fellow student and Zhejiang native who had taken Kathy as her first name. The relationship was kept secret from Jack's family. During a dinner one evening in Hangzhou with his father, Jack, and his parents, Stephen Morley recalled, I blurted out, Nir Peng Yu, girlfriend, and gestured towards Jack. Jack looked mortified and probably wanted to kill me at this point. This led to a discussion in Mandarin between Jack and his parents. Jack still reminds me of the time I blabbed on him as a kid. Despite being outed by their young Australian friend, the relationship between Jack and Kathy endured, and they were married soon after. The Morleys once again showed their generosity and gave the couple 22,000 Australian dollars, about $18,000, to help finance the purchase of their first home, two apartments on top of a tower block that they combined together to make a penthouse. Jack later said that words could not express what Ken and Judy Morley had done for him. Ken Morley died in September 2004 at the age of 78. His obituary in a local newspaper records that he had taken his children to China and Cuba and encouraged them to get an education, travel, and have a political point of view. This broad-minded, generous approach extended outside the family, and Ken is well known for befriending a poor young Chinese boy. This boy is now a man who heads a successful company in China. At the funeral, a clergyman read out a message from Jack to the Morley family in which he disclosed a plan he had to one day travel the Trans-Siberian Railway with Ken, whom he described as his Australian dad and mentor. His son David wrote to me, It may be a fantasy now, and with his celebrity status, something difficult to achieve for Jack Incognito, but I would like one day to fulfill the idea of that trip on behalf of my father. The irony is that Ken Morley, who was instrumental in unlocking opportunities for a man who would become one of China's richest capitalists, was himself a committed socialist. Born the son of a miner and a seamstress, he was a longtime political activist and member of the Communist Party of Australia, presenting himself as a candidate in local elections for the Socialist Alliance. In the years before he died, he would witness some of Jack's early success, expressing his embarrassment at the money and gifts Jack and Kathy liked to shower on him. Instead, he treasured most, he said, the honor that Jack and Kathy bestowed on him by naming their eldest child after him, calling him Kun, an approximation of Ken. China impacted the Morleys, too. Susan Morley went on to study Chinese in Sydney for several years, the Ma and Morley families remain close friends to this day and continue to vacation together. To get rich is glorious. In 1992, Deng Xiaoping undertook his famous Southern Tour, immortalized in his pronouncement that to get rich is glorious. For the country's entrepreneurs, 
relegated to the margins of society, Deng's endorsement was an unambiguous invitation to return to the fold. But Jack was not yet an entrepreneur. Upon graduating in 1988 with a bachelor's degree in English, he had become a lecturer in English and international trade at the Hangzhou Institute of Electronic Engineering. While his fellow students were all assigned to teach English in middle schools, Jack was the only one among 500 graduates to be assigned to teach in an institution of higher learning. But he had started to think of a future beyond teaching. Jack recalled the lesson he drew from Deng's southern tour. You can be rich. You can help other people be rich. Although he was keen to serve out the remaining two years of his contract, Jack began to pursue opportunities outside his school. After his day job at the Institute, he started teaching English classes at the Hangzhou YMCA. According to Chen Wei, who first attended a class in 1992, Jack's English classes were popular because he spent little time teaching grammar, vocabulary, or reading out texts. Instead, Jack preferred to pick a topic and engage in conversation. His students came from a wide variety of backgrounds, from high schoolers striving to study overseas, to college students, to factory workers and young professionals. Jack would often spend time with them after class, drinking tea, playing cards, and chatting. Hangzhou had a regular English corner, a gathering of local residents keen to practice their language skills on one another, which met every Sunday morning in the Sixth Park beside West Lake. Jack would take along his students from night school, but as they were eager to go more often, he decided to launch his own English corner. His sessions were held every Wednesday night, with Jack finding that the anonymity that darkness conferred made his students less self-conscious in practicing their imperfect English. But Jack's teaching days were coming to an end. Swept up in the enthusiasm that Deng Xiaoping's southern tour had fanned, he resolved to launch his own business before he turned 30. Working part-time on his new business, after class, he named his first company Hope. Chapter 4 Hope and Coming to America China has a million companies that want to sell abroad, but they don't know how. Jack Ma In January 1994, at the age of 29, Jack founded the Hangzhou Haibo Translation Agency. When the company first started, there were only five staff members, mostly retired teachers from the institute. He rented two rooms at 27 Chinyan Road, not far from West Lake, in a converted church that once housed the YMCA. Today, the sign for Hope Translation still hangs outside, where the translation agency maintains a meeting room adjacent to what has become the YMCA International Youth Hostel. Jack convinced some students from his English night school to lend a hand with the business, largely to help find his first clients. On opening day, his students went to Wulin Square with banners to help publicize the company. A few of these students ended up joining the company full-time. One of the early employees was Jern Hong. She met Jack in 1993, when he was teaching advanced oral English at the YMCA. She recalled, Nobody else saw the opportunity in this business. 
We didn't make much money at first, but Jack persevered. I respect him tremendously, for he has a great ability to motivate people, and he can invest things that seem hopeless with exciting possibility. He can make those around him get excited about life. Jack's first business was focused on helping local companies find customers overseas. Jack later recalled, I had to teach during the day and had no time to help others do translation work, but lots of retired teachers had nothing to do at home, and their pension was low, so I wanted to found a translation company to be an intermediary. With its narrow focus on translation, Jack would not find commercial success with hope. But his first venture gave him direct exposure to the entrepreneurial revolution that was transforming Zhejiang and his first tentative steps as an entrepreneur himself. The Chinese word for hope was haibo, which literally translates as vast like the sea. Popular slang for leaving a government job and entering the private sector at the time was to xia hai, or to jump into the sea. Jack wanted to get his feet wet as an entrepreneur, but he wasn't quite ready to take the plunge and abandon his public sector job as a teacher. Entrepreneurship is such a well-established part of modern Chinese business and culture today that it is easy to forget how much things have changed in the last few decades. In the earliest days of China's economic reforms, entrepreneurship was viewed as a highly risky, even illegal undertaking. Memories then were fresh of those imprisoned or even executed during the Cultural Revolution for carrying out commercial activities. From 1978, the establishment of a household contract responsibility system allowed farmers to sell surplus crops on the open market. The first embers of private business started to grow with the township and village enterprises, TVEs. The TVEs were nominally state-controlled, but in effect privately run rural enterprises. The spark was lit for a rapid expansion of private sector employment in China. From the early 1980s, the Chinese government began to recognize entrepreneurs, first individual entrepreneurs, then businesses run by entrepreneurs. The first entrepreneurs, the Goethe-Hu, were not leaving behind a stable government job, but rather were those with nothing to lose. They were mostly agricultural laborers, their low status inviting the pejorative association of peddlers. As they grew richer, they were resented and mocked for their success and lack of class. One early Goethe who even papered the walls of his home with banknotes. Some of the richest business people in China today started out as lowly Goethe who, many in Zhejiang province. To understand Alibaba's rise, it is helpful to understand how Jack's home province became the source of so much wealth. Zhejiang, China's Crucible of Entrepreneurship Hangzhou, the nearby port of Ningbo, and other industrial clusters dotting northern Zhejiang and southern Jiangsu provinces form the economic powerhouse of the Yangtze River Delta, with Shanghai as its center. Home to Alibaba's e-commerce empire, Hangzhou has a long tradition as a trading center. The city once served as the southernmost point of the 1,100-mile-long Grand Canal, whose full name in Chinese is 
Jinghan Da Yunhe, or the Beijing-Hanzhou Grand Canal. For more than a thousand years, the Grand Canal was the main trading artery between South and North China, making Hangzhou one of the most prosperous cities in China. Hangzhou and the nearby port of Ningbo lie on relatively flat land, but most of Zhejiang Province is mountainous. Its elevations and rivers creating a patchwork of isolated communities and dialects. The need to trade and the distance from the country's political rulers have helped make Zhejiang the cradle of private enterprise in China. Today, many of the province's entrepreneurs sit atop China's rich list. Most, like Jack, started out living hard scrabble lives. Zhang Qinghao, worth more than eleven billion dollars. Is the founder of Wahaha, China's largest beverage manufacturer. From the age of four, Zhang grew up in Hangzhou, later working on a salt farm on an island off the coast of Ningbo before graduating from secondary school. In the 1980s, he sold ice pops on the street for less than a penny. Li Shufu, worth more than two billion dollars, founded Geely, China's first non-state-owned car manufacturer. He started out assembling refrigerators using spare parts. Then, in 1988, founded Geely. In 2010, Geely purchased Sweden's Volvo cars. Lu Gongqiu, worth more than seven billion dollars, is the founder of Wanxiang Group, the Hangzhou-based auto parts manufacturer. He started out as a farmer, then started buying scrap metal from villagers. Jack's friend Gua Guancheng. A man worth an estimated seven billion dollars before his unexplained disappearance for several days in December 2015, is the founder of investment firm Fusun. Gua survived the Cultural Revolution only by eating moldy, dried vegetables. Later, winning entry to Shanghai's prestigious Fudan University, where he sold bread door to door in the dorms to make ends meet. Prior to his surprise absence in 2015. Fusun had been described by the Financial Times as the Berkshire Hathaway of China. Gua is an active supporter of Alibaba's forays into logistics and finance. As we saw in the logistics edge of the Iron Triangle, one cluster of Zhejiang's entrepreneurs has played an important role in Alibaba's success. The Tonglu Gang of logistics companies, located in the town of Tonglu, to the southwest of Hangzhou. Account for more than half of all package deliveries in China. Tonglu was the birthplace of the late Nie Tengfei, founder of courier giant Shentong, Sto Express. Born into poverty, Nie raised pigs, planted grain, and sold firewood before moving to Hangzhou to work in a printing factory. He moonlighted as a courier delivering bread on his tricycle, before spotting an opportunity at the age of twenty. To beat China Post, delivering customs forms for trading companies to Hangzhou, to the port in Shanghai, Nie died in a car crash in 1998. But Shen Tong continued to thrive. Two of Nie's relatives and one of his classmates each founded three other large courier companies in the Tonglu Gang. Hangzhou, the provincial capital, and Ningbo, its largest port, have long been prosperous trading centers. But two other cities in Zhejiang, Wenzhou and Yiwu, though less well known overseas, 
are renowned in China for their newfound wealth. Wen Zhou helped legitimize the role of entrepreneurs in society, and Yi Wu established the wholesale markets that extended their reach to all parts of the country, and indeed the world. Wen Zhou and Yi Wu have played as important a part in China's entrepreneurial revolution as the cotton mills of Lancashire did in Britain's industrial revolution. Wang Zhou and Yi Wu provided the dynamism that inspired Jack to launch his own entrepreneurial career. Innovations in Wanzhou opened the door for Alibaba's future forays into financial services, and the massive wholesale market in Yiwu was a template for Alibaba's first business model, connecting merchants in China with global buyers. Let us take a brief tour. Wenzhou. Wenzhou lies 200 miles southeast of Hangzhou, hemmed in by mountains on one side and the East China Sea on the other. Wenzhou has always looked to trade, including tea exports, for its livelihood. But after 1949, its proximity to nationalist Taiwan became a liability. With Shanghai a 300-mile ferry ride away, the city suffered from its isolation. Wenzhou had little arable land and many unemployed or underemployed agricultural workers. But once Deng Xiaoping launched his economic reforms in 1978. The private sector started to boom. When Zhou's entrepreneurs, often working with family members, started out in light manufacturing, in the 1980s they were some of the first merchants to fan out across China to sell their wares, including knockoffs of Western brands. For many, Chinese goods from Wenzhou were the first items they ever purchased that were not made by the state. Wenzhou has played a pivotal role in legitimizing entrepreneurship in China. In 1984, the Wenzhou municipal government invited the city's most successful private entrepreneurs to a conference. Although the government wanted to help them showcase their success, many entrepreneurs refused to attend, fearing arrest. Only two years earlier, a number of entrepreneurs in the city had been arrested for speculation. They still languished in prison. Of the entrepreneurs who showed up for the meeting with the government, a number brought along their toothbrushes in case they too were detained. But the entrepreneurs were not jailed. After releasing those arrested two years earlier, the Wenzhou government published an unprecedented admission in local newspapers that it had erred. Professor Yasheng Huang at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology writes that many entrepreneurs cited these two episodes. As having convinced them of their personal security, for decades in China, the country's state-owned banks ignored private enterprises and individuals, making politically directed loans to the state-owned enterprises (SOEs). Starved for lending, the private sector in Wenzhou began to devise its own private credit market, often adopting illegal structures. The local government actively supported the establishment of private credit associations, cooperatives, and money houses, a form of local financial broker that derives profits from the spread between rates of interest on deposits and loans, forming a system that came to be known as the Wenzhou model. Wenzhou paved the way for Alibaba's own foray into banking. When Alibaba received its banking license in 2014. Two of the other five recipients were from Wenzhou. Raw entrepreneurial spirit plus access to capital 
fueled an explosion in the city's private sector, which so dominated Wenzhou's economy that the state became completely marginalized. Facing a huge demand for new roads and bridges, the entrepreneurs of Wenzhou didn't wait for funds or instructions from Beijing. They simply built their own in a surge of construction that bordered on anarchy, lacking any coordinated plan. In 1990, acting on their own, entrepreneurs even funded the construction of the city's airport. One year later, the country's first private carrier, Junyao Airlines, was launched in the city. In 1998, Wenzhou created China's first privately funded railroad. Today in China, Wenzhou is synonymous with wealth. The city's residents are resented by some for their mass shopping sprees, always paying cash, which have driven up the prices of apartments in Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, New York City, and beyond. Yiwa. Yiwa is an unlikely location for one of the world's key trading nodes. It is located inland, far from Hangzhou, Ningbo, or the East China Sea. Like Wenzhou, it was dirt poor with little cultivable land. Lacking any alternative, local farmers since the 16th century turned to trade. Their main product was brown sugar, which they cooked with ginger and cut into chunks. This they bartered for chicken feathers, which they used to make feather dusters, or mulched to make fertilizer. In the winters, when the farmers had little to do and food was scarce, local men would hoist a pole with bamboo baskets on their shoulders, and travel the country as peddlers. They carried out sugar chunks, sewing needles, and thread, and brought chicken feathers back to Yiwa. As they walked, they would use a rattle drum to attract customers. They became known as sugar shoulder pole men, a precursor to today's million-strong courier workforce. Soon there were so many itinerant merchants in Yiwa that they formed a veritable mobile army. To supply them with wares in the 1700s, the first wholesale markets started to appear in the city. Trade flourished for centuries until the dislocation of the Japanese invasion and communist revolution. When Deng Xiaoping's reforms started to take effect, the wholesale trade came out of the shadows. In September 1982, traders in Yiwa were allowed access to a patch of land, a ditch that they had first cemented over, to set up their stalls. Seven hundred stalls popped up almost immediately, and Yiwa became one of the first wholesale markets of its kind in post-revolutionary China. Today, the city is home to the largest wholesale market in the world, and its population has shot up to over two million people. An estimated forty thousand people visit the wholesale market every day. The seven hundred stalls have become seventy thousand outlets, housed today inside the Yiwa International Trade Center. This colossal building spans more than forty million square feet, generating a turnover of more than six billion dollars per year. On sale inside are an estimated 1.7 million products, from toys to plastic flowers, jewelry to suitcases, clothing to home appliances, anything and everything that is made in China. Without knowing it, a huge amount of what we consume in the West has passed through Yiwa. Even Christmas is made in Yiwa. 
More than 60% of the world's Christmas decorations are manufactured in the city. Although traders travel there overwhelmingly for its cheap prices, part of Yiwa's attraction has been its supply of counterfeit products. For example, handbags sold under the almost familiar-sounding names such as Goosey. The Financial Times journalist James Kinge traveled to the city in 2005 to research the problem of fake goods, only to find out that even hotels there were fake. He passed by not the Hyatt, but the Hyatt. Yiwa attracts traders from all four corners of the world. The town is a favorite of traders from the Middle East, making Yiwa home to the fastest-growing Muslim community in China. With an estimated 35,000 Muslims in the city at any time, Chinese, South Asian, and Arab, Yiwa features dozens of Muslim restaurants and an ornate $4 million mosque featuring marble imported from Iran. Since 2014, Yiwa is the start of the longest freight railroad line in the world. Taking 21 days to traverse end-to-end, the 8,111-mile line links Yiwa with Madrid. What makes Yiwa such an essential node is its role marketing the goods of the countless industrial clusters of Zhejiang and other parts of the Yangtze River Delta. These single-product towns can represent 80% or more of the production of individual commodities, not just in China, but worldwide. Xiaoxing is textile city and Yongkang is hardware city, churning out 30,000 steel doors and 150,000 motor scooters every day. Taizhou is known as sewing machine city, and Shenzhou as necktie city. Heining calls itself leather city. There is even a toothbrush city, in case nervous entrepreneurs get a summons from their local government official in Hangzhi. Yiwa itself claims to be China's sock city, producing annually more than three billion pairs of socks for companies like Walmart and Disney. Although Daitong, near Hangzhou, also claims to be sock city, producing more than eight billion pairs each year. By the mid-1990s, when Jack was starting his own business career, Zhejiang was already an entrepreneurial powerhouse. But the province's companies were highly labor-intensive, and their average size small. From hardly any entrepreneurs at the beginning of the 1980s, by 1994, Zhejiang arguably had too many. In a population of 44 million people, the province was home to an estimated 10 million economic entities. Many manufacturers struggled to find enough customers to make a profit. Unlike the factories in southern China set up by wealthy overseas Chinese in Hong Kong and Taiwan, the small factories in Zhejiang had to hustle to find customers and finance. China's state-owned banks denied them any credit. This chronic lack of funding created innovations in private finance, such as the Wenzhou model, and led to the rise of industrial clusters that bound together debtors and creditors who could dole out capital based on the profit they believed would be generated by a specific contract. By 2004, of the top hundred largest domestic private firms in China, half came from Zhejiang province. Jack recognized early on both the region's strengths and its shortcomings, and is a proud advocate for the province. 
Since October 2015, he serves as the inaugural chairman of the General Association of Zhejiang Entrepreneurs. In his inaugural speech, Jack talked about the six million Zhejiang entrepreneurs in China, and the two million Zhejiang entrepreneurs around the world. The total number of over eight million Zhejiang entrepreneurs might be the largest business association in the world. They have created another economic entity in addition to the local economy in Zhejiang. Their successes weren't won easily, though. In an earlier speech to the Zhejiang Chamber of Commerce, Jack summed up the dynamism of his home province. As entrepreneurs from Zhejiang, our greatest advantages are that we are hardworking, courageous, and good at seizing opportunities. We have these excellent qualities because we were given nothing. We are not like other provinces which have resources of coal and ore. We Zhejiang entrepreneurs have markets. As long as we are in places where there are people, we are always able to find opportunities. It will be the same in the future. Yet Jack's first effort to tap into Zhejiang's entrepreneurial fizz was not a success. In 1994, his Hope Translation venture had gotten off to a troubled start. While his monthly office rent was almost $300, his first month's income was just over $20. Hope may spring eternal, but cash is king. Jack was facing a crunch. To support his venture, Jack started peddling goods on the streets of Hangzhou. Including some he sourced from Yiwu, his translation company also became a trading company. Hope Translation Agency started to sell gifts, flowers, books, and even plastic carpet—a range of items that foreshadows Taobao. Jack recalled, "We did everything. This income supported the translation agency for three years until we started to make ends meet. We believed that as long as we kept doing it." We would definitely have a future, but it was becoming clear to Jack that translation services alone were not going to sate his entrepreneurial ambitions. Soon, an unexpected journey, which looked at first like a disaster, was about to give Jack a lucky break. With his reputation as an expert English speaker growing from his popular evening classes and his Hope Translation venture, Jack was asked by the government of Tonglu County. Some fifty miles to the southwest of Hangzhou, and later home to the Tonglu Gang of logistic companies, to assist as an interpreter in helping resolve a dispute with an American company over the construction of a new highway. In 1994, the company had proposed to invest in a new highway to be built from Hangzhou to Tonglu. After a year of negotiations, no agreement had been reached, and the initial funding promised by the partner in the United States. Had not materialized. Jack was tapped to find out what was going on and hopefully end the deadlock. First, Jack traveled to Hong Kong, where he was told that the company's funds were held in the United States. So Jack embarked on his first trip there. He would stay for a month. His mission for the Tonglu government was a failure, but the trip would give him his first exposure to the internet, and he would return to China a changed man. Going to America, his first trip to America sounds more like a plot for an Ocean's Eleven-style crime caper than an interpreter's business trip, at least according to the version put out five years later during the dot-com boom, when media started to take an interest in Jack's background. Upon arriving in Los Angeles, the story goes, 
Jack met with the unnamed boss of Tonglu's erstwhile U.S. partner. Jack quickly figured out, as the economist related, that the company he was investigating did not exist, that his host was a crook, and that he himself was in serious danger. Jack has never named the boss, later described in local media only as a bulky Californian. But after refusing to take a bribe, Jack recalled he was locked in a beach house in Malibu, where his captor flashed a gun. He was then taken to Las Vegas, where he was kept in a form of house arrest in a hotel room on the top floor of a casino. Jack hasn't repeated the details of any of this in recent years. His personal assistant, Chen Wei, has written that it is an episode that Jack prefers to forget. A few years after the incident, when Alibaba was beginning to gain international prominence, Jack told a similar story to Melinda Liu, the Beijing bureau chief for Newsweek. I flew to Hangzhou for an exclusive interview with Jack, and he spent a generous amount of time showing me around the Alibaba headquarters and talking at length about his life. He said that, on his very first visit to the USA, a former business contact, an American, had virtually kidnapped him in a failed attempt to get Jack to work for him. At the time, Jack was pretty matter-of-fact, and the anecdote was just one of many, he recounted. I later contacted him requesting more information. He indicated he didn't want to make too much of it and declined to provide additional details. The bizarre story ends with Jack escaping his hotel room and winning $600 on slot machines in the casino. Abandoning his belongings upstairs, he escapes the casino and buys an airline ticket for Seattle. A less colorful version of the story was detailed in an article published in September 1995 in the Hangzhou Daily, which says Jack had taken along $4,000 in savings and money borrowed from his wife Kathy's mother and his brother-in-law. In any event, it was in Seattle that Jack first logged on to the Internet. He had heard about the Internet the previous year from a fellow English teacher in Hangzhou called Bill Aho. Bill's son-in-law was working on an Internet-related business, which Bill described. Jack recalled that it was Bill who first told him about the Internet, but that he couldn't explain it clearly either. It sounded very strange. I couldn't really understand it either. In Seattle, Jack stayed at the house of Bill Aho's relatives, Dave and Dolores Selig. Jack was shown around the wealthier districts of the city, including the Queen Anne neighborhood. Dolores Selig recalled to the BBC that Jack was impressed by some of the larger houses on the hill. Jack would point at various houses and say, I'm going to buy that one and that one and that one. And we just laughed because they were very expensive houses. But he was impressed. Bill Aho remembered, at that time, he didn't have a nickel. Jack then met Bill Aho's son-in-law, Stuart Trusty, who had set up an Internet consultancy called Virtual Broadcast Network, VBN, located in the U.S. Bank Building on Fifth Avenue near Pike Street in downtown Seattle. Jack came and I showed him what the Internet was, Trusty recalled. Back then, the Internet was largely a directory for governments and businesses, but he seemed excited. For Jack, the visit to Seattle was a transformative experience. It was my first trip to the States, the first time in my life I touched a keyboard and computers, the first time in my life I connected to the Internet, and the first time I decided to leave as a teacher and start a company. 
Jack recalled his first online session. My friend Stuart said, Jack, this is Internet. You can find whatever you can find through the Internet. I say, really? So I searched the word beer. Very simple word. I don't know why I searched for beer, but I found American beer, Germany beer, and no Chinese beer. I was curious, so I searched China, and no China, no data. Intrigued, Jack asked Stuart for help. I talked to my friend. Why don't I make something about China? So we made a small, very ugly-looking page for the translation agency I listed on there. The site for Hope Translation was just text, without any images, plus a telephone number and the price for translation work. Jack later recalled to the journalist Charlie Rose, It was so shocking. We launched it 9.40 in the morning. 12.30, I got a phone call from my friend. Jack, you've got five emails. I said, What is email? Three emails came from the United States, one from Japan, and one from Germany. Jack set about formulating the idea for a new business, helping Chinese companies find export channels online, and pitched the idea of a partnership with VBN. Stewart, who developed a love of Tai Chi from Jack, he still practices in Atlanta today, recalled Jack as intensely focused on work. We'd go down to the office, we'd do our work, and we'd get something to eat, go back home, maybe do more Tai Chi, and it was just that way, every day. No extracurricular activities. Jack's dealing with VBN weren't easy. Stewart asked for an upfront deposit of $200,000 to grant Jack the exclusive right to make web pages in China. When Jack explained that he had borrowed money to make the trip to the United States and was now penniless, Stewart signed the agreement without the deposit, but on the condition that Jack pay up as soon as possible, even enlisting Bill Aho and his wife as guarantors. To get home to Hangzhou, according to a local media report, Jack had to borrow funds from a Hangzhou student in the States, then fly to Shanghai. For his client in Tonglu, Jack returned to China empty-handed, with no deal to finance the proposed highway, but inside his suitcase he carried back with him a computer running the Intel 486 processor. It was the most advanced in China at that time. Back in Hangzhou, he set about building his concept of an online Yellow Pages. He named the business China Pages. In this, his second venture, he would dive headfirst into the entrepreneurial sea, leaving his teaching days behind. Chapter 5 China is Coming On If traditional industry and e-commerce successfully merge together, there will be no limit to China's next round of economic development. Jack Ma Soon after returning from Seattle to Hangzhou, Jack resigned his position as a teacher at the Hangzhou Institute of Electronic Engineering. He had realized that his teaching days must end when he ran into the dean, who was riding his bicycle, carrying vegetables he had just bought from the market. The dean encouraged him to keep working hard at teaching, but looking at the bicycle and the vegetables, Jack realized that even if he were to become dean himself one day, this was a future he couldn't get excited about. His new dream wasn't teaching or translating. Fresh from his first contact with the Internet, he would build an online index in English 
of businesses in China seeking customers overseas. As Stuart Trustee had noticed back in Seattle, Jack had a tremendous work ethic. To populate China pages with entries, he toiled away collecting information on companies, which he would translate into English, then send along with photos to VBN in Seattle for uploading to the website. In March 1995, Jack convened a gathering of two dozen of his night school students to present his concept and seek their advice, as well as their business. I asked the most active and capable people from my evening classes to my home. I talked about two hours. They listened to me, obviously confused. Eventually, lots of people cast their votes. Twenty-three of them said it would not work out. Only one person, now he is working at Agricultural Bank of China, said to me, "If you want to try, then go ahead. But if it doesn't work out, come back as soon as you can." Undeterred, he pressed ahead. Together with his friend He Yebing, a computer science teacher at the institute Jack had just left, Jack launched China Pages. The two had met the year before when He Yebing was looking for someone to help him practice his English ahead of a training trip to Singapore. There, He Yebing gained exposure to the internet. When Jack returned from Seattle with a dream of building an internet company, the two decided to work together. China Pages. The company they registered, Hangzhou Haibo Network Consulting (HHNC), was one of the first in China devoted to the internet. To fund his startup, Jack borrowed money from his relatives, including his sister, brother-in-law, and parents. Jack's wife, Kathy, was the first employee. In April 1995, Jack and He Yebing opened the first office for China Pages in a 12-square-meter office building. At 38 Winner Road, to portray their business as a solid concern, Jack and He Yebing printed up several versions of their business cards, each listing different positions that they would use depending on whom they were meeting. During the day, the two partners went out to find clients, returning in the evening to teach an introductory training course about the information superhighway. This class helped generate some of China Page's early customers. On May 10, 1995, they registered the domain name ChinaPages.com in the United States. In July, they officially launched their website, which featured a red-framed map of Asia with China highlighted under the title "China Business Pages: The Online China Business Directory." The website's homepage indicated ChinaPages.com was broadcast via Seattle, USA, from Hangzhou, the Garden City. The site featured tabs including "What's New," "What's Cool," "Net Search," and "Net Directory," and a link to Hope, his translation venture. China Pages started off as a family affair. Jack's wife Kathy, her sister Zhang Jin, and He Yibing's girlfriend all lent a hand. Jack's former students also provided a ready pool of talent for China Pages. Jane Zhang, Zhang Fang. Whom Jack had taught at the institute a few years earlier took charge of customer service. One visitor to China Pages in those early days was Cui Luhai, who ran a computer animation business. Now a lecturer at the China Academy of Art, Cui commented, "I can still remember the first scene I saw when I walked into his office. It was a pretty empty space with only one desk set up in the middle of the room. 
There was only one very old PC desktop surrounded by a lot of people. Sway learned that Jack had spent most of his money on registering the business, leaving little left over for hardware or other equipment. China Pages badly needed customers. Kathy signed up one of the first clients, who paid them 8,000 yuan, $960. The company received a boost when Hangzhou was selected in May to hold the Formula One Powerboat World Championship later that year, the first time the event would be held in China. Jack's venture won the contract to make the official website for the race. To win more clients, as with Hope Translation beforehand, Jack called on his former students to spread the word and bring in business. Two of them duly obliged. He Shangyang, a former student of Jack's, was working at the Qiangjiang Law Firm. Reluctant to list the firm's name on the Internet, he gave Jack his personal phone number instead. To his surprise, he started to receive phone calls around the clock from prospective clients, many overseas, who told him they'd got his number from China Pages. The once skeptical lawyer started to think there might be something to Jack's story about the Internet after all. Another former student was Zhou Lan, who had become Jack's secretary. Zhou was working at the Lakeview Hotel in Hangzhou when Jack made a website for them, featuring the hotel's brand-new 14-inch color TVs. Later that year, the United Nations held its fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing, attended by more than 17,000 participants, including First Lady Hillary Clinton. A number of delegates traveled on to Hangzhou after the conference. Booking rooms at the Lakeview, they told the hotel management it was the only hotel in Hangzhou they could find online. By the following spring, the hotel had sold more rooms in the first three months than the previous year, another demonstration of the power of the Internet. Even with the help of Jack's former students, China Pages needed more clients if it was going to survive. But demonstrating what China Pages was all about was not easy, for one very basic reason. In Hangzhou, at the time, it was impossible to get online. Instead, Jack came up with an alternative approach. First, he spread the word through friends and contacts about what the Internet could do for their business. He then asked those interested to send him marketing materials to introduce their companies and products. Next, Jack and his colleagues translated the materials and sent the material by mail to VBN in Seattle. VBN then designed the websites and put them online. They then printed out screenshots of the websites and mailed them to Hangzhou. Finally, Jack took the printed materials to his friends and announced that, although they couldn't check this themselves, their websites were now online. But without Internet access in Hangzhou, it was a challenge even explaining to his customers what online actually meant. As sales pitches go, asking people who had never heard of the Internet to fork over 20,000 renminbi, $2,400, up front to create, design, and host a website they could never see was a challenging one. Jack worried that people thought he was defrauding them. I was treated like a con man for three years, he said. First Connection Finally, in the fall of 1995, Zhejiang Telecom started to provide Internet access services in Hangzhou. By the end of the year, there were only 204 Internet users in the whole province. But Jack was among them and was finally able to load a website in front of his first client, the Lakeview Hotel, 
on the 486 computer he'd brought back from Seattle in his suitcase. It took three and a half hours to download the front page. I was so excited. Starting with Deng Xiaoping's reforms, China experienced an entrepreneurial explosion that began to replace Marx with the market, becoming a socialist country with Chinese characteristics. But this did not mean the Communist Party was going to ease up on a central pillar of its rule, the control of information. China has a long tradition of controlling information, but especially so under the rule of the Communist Party. It is surprising, therefore, that the country ever connected to the Internet at all. The fact that it did illustrates the Chinese government's often contradictory desires to maintain control while simultaneously unlocking greater economic opportunities. Without the Internet, Jack's vision of connecting entrepreneurs with global markets would have never been realized. On September 14, 1987, while Jack was still a university student, the very first email from China was sent by Professor Qian Tianbai at Peking University to Karlsruhe University in what was then West Germany. The email, in English and German, read, Across the Great Wall, we can reach every corner in the world. The email was sent at 300 bits per second, BPS, an impossibly slow connection by today's typical consumer broadband speeds measured by the tens or hundreds of millions of BPS. It would be another seven years before China was connected to the Internet proper. While the Chinese government was thinking about what to do about the Internet, wrestling with issues of ideology, control, and infrastructure, the U.S. government was pondering the wisdom of bringing a communist country online. In the end, it was not politicians, but scientists on both sides of the Pacific who took the lead. After years of efforts, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, SLAC, in Menlo Park, California, connected with the Institute of High Energy Physics, IHEP, 5,800 miles away in Beijing. While this was just a connection between two institutions, other scientists wanted to set up their own links. Connecting SLAC, IHEP, to the Internet was a much easier solution then stringing up new links from other locations in the United States to IHEP. As Dr. Les Cottrell at SLAC recalled, we explored this only to find out that the DOD, Department of Defense, the DOE, Department of Energy, the State Department, all were very concerned about this. But eventually the U.S. government agreed. They said, okay, you can do this as long as you tell everybody who is on the Internet that China's coming on. Les wasn't quite sure how to tell everybody on the Internet, but eventually it was agreed that he would send an email to a particular distribution list. On May 17, 1994, the first real Internet connection to China was established. Although IHEP was host to China's first web pages, the Internet soon became more than a privilege reserved for particle physicists. At the same time as this first connection was being established, China was on the verge of a massive expansion in its communications infrastructure, a policy it called informatization, Xinxiwa. China's communist rulers had watched the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990 with alarm, attributing it in part to the yawning technological gap that had opened up with the United States. At the beginning of 1994, China had only 27 million phone lines and 640,000 cell phones 
for a population of 1.2 billion. The early users of cell phones were either government officials or the getehu who could afford to shell out $2,000 to buy one, with others making do with pagers. The Chinese government resolved to change this, seeing an improvement in telecommunications as a tangible improvement they could deliver in the lives of the masses, just as King Henry IV of France cemented his legitimacy by putting a chicken on every dinner table on a Sunday, with Xinxia, the Chinese Communist Party began to roll out phone lines, then cell phones, then broadband connections to hundreds of millions of people. In 1993, Vice Premier Zhu Rongji launched the Golden Bridge Project to create an information and communications network spanning the whole country. In 1994, the government ended the monopoly of telecom services held by the Ministry of Posts and Telecommunications (MPT). To inject some competition into the market, a second carrier called China Unicom was established. Other countries, starting with the United Kingdom, had used private capital to finance the competitors, taking on state-owned telecom incumbents. China, obsessed with control of information, could not contemplate this. Twenty years on, it still hasn't, and opted instead to launch China Unicom as a new state-owned enterprise, backed by three other ministries and a number of other state-owned enterprises, effectively pitting one government department against a coalition of other departments, in a uniquely Chinese approach to telecom deregulation. Spurred into action by the loss of its monopoly, the new minister of MPT Wu Jichuan. Responded with massive new investment in telecom infrastructure. During a visit by U.S. Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown to Beijing shortly after the first SLAC IHEP internet connection was established, China signed an agreement with Sprint to set up a new internet connection linking Beijing and Shanghai with the United States. This was the beginning of the ChinaNet Internet Service Provider Link that would allow members of the public. Including Jack, to dial up to the internet in China for the first time. China's first technology entrepreneurs. As word spread that China was finally investing in its telecom infrastructure, the country's first technology entrepreneurs began to emerge. Mostly U.S. educated engineers, they started new ventures to help build out China's communications networks. One of the most prominent was James Ding. Ding Jian, a master's graduate in information science from the University of California, Los Angeles, after the suppression of pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square in June 1989, he and many other U.S.-educated Chinese instead shifted their hopes for radical political change in China to a faith in the power of technology to reshape the country. In 1993, James Ding joined forces with Beijing-born Edward Tian. Tian Suning, who had recently completed a Ph.D. at Texas Tech, to co-found Asia Info. In 1995, they moved the company's operations to Beijing to work on the data network build-out for China's telcos, including China Telecom's ChinaNet dial-up internet access network. Edward Tian would go on to become a leading figure in China's telecom market, and both he and James Ding would become high-profile investors in the technology sector. In 1995, another influential Chinese technology firm, UT Starcom, was formed. Started by Chinese and Taiwanese entrepreneurs in the United States, 
The company soon set up its China operations in Hangzhou. UT Starcom would play an important role in spurring the growth of China's telecom market by promoting a low-cost mobile system called Little Smart, Xiaoling Tong. This success helped put Hangzhou on the map for investors as a technology hub. A key investor in UT Starcom in 1995 was the newly established Japanese investment fund SoftBank, a firm that five years later would start to play a critical role in the success of Alibaba. Founded by Japanese billionaire Masayoshi Son, SoftBank took a 30% stake in UT Starcom. UT Starcom was formed by the merger of Unitech Industries and Starcom Network Systems. Unitech's Taiwanese founder, Lu Hongyang, had studied with Masayoshi Son at the University of California, Berkeley. Starcom's co-founder, Chauncey She, went on to head SoftBank China Venture Capital, which led Masayoshi Son's investment in Alibaba in 2000. By late 1995, with China's telecom and internet build-out beginning to gain momentum, Jack and his customers were finally able to connect to the internet from Hangzhou using the ChinaNet service that had already been rolled out in Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. Soon after, Jack traveled back to the United States with Li Qi, his newly appointed chief engineer, to visit VBN in Seattle. On returning to China. They ended their venture with VBN, setting up their own servers and a new China Pages site. This helped cut costs, but boosting revenues was proving hard. In 1995, only 1.5 million personal computers were sold in China, mostly to business or government users. Priced at roughly $1,800, the PCs cost a fortune for average Chinese at the time. The costs of getting a fixed line installed and getting online. Combined with a lack of awareness about what the internet actually was, meant that China Pages was having a hard time finding enough customers. Jack stepped up his efforts to evangelize the internet. He even enlisted Bill Gates, in a manner of speaking. In late 1995, Gates's book *The Road Ahead* became an instant bestseller in the United States, and soon after in China too. Although the book hardly mentioned the World Wide Web. To convince prospective clients of the importance of the internet, Jack started citing a quote from Bill Gates: "The internet will change every aspect of human beings' lives." A useful marketing message for China Pages, Jack had in fact made it up, as he later confessed. In 1995, the world started to know Bill Gates. But if I said Jack Ma says that the internet will change every aspect of human beings' lives, who would believe it? But he added. I believed that Bill Gates would definitely say it one day. Shortly after the book was released, Gates famously did realize the importance of the internet, dramatically stepping up Microsoft's efforts and releasing a second edition of the book with a much greater emphasis on the internet. Meanwhile, in Beijing, an entrepreneur, Jasmine Zhang, Zhang Shuxing, had started to attract growing media interest after founding in May 1995. One of China's first privately owned internet service businesses, she called her venture Ying Highway, a rough phonetic equivalent in Chinese of the English term information highway. Other China internet founders credit her as the source of inspiration for starting their own ventures. One told me, "One day I was driving to work and saw one of their billboard ads saying, 
How far is China away from the information highway? Fifteen hundred meters ahead, referring to the company's office. Building on a tradition of internal BBS, bulletin board systems, popular in leading academic institutions such as Tsinghua and Peking universities, the company started to serve a few hundred users keen to experience the internet, then mostly dominated by websites in English, and share comments in Chinese about what they were discovering. Back in Hangzhou, Jack stepped up his efforts to promote his own venture. Scoring a breakthrough when the Zhejiang provincial government invited China Pages to build its website, the government official in charge of commissioning the website, Yang Jiangqing, later recalled his dealings with Jack. The first time he came to my office, frankly speaking, as I understood him to be an internet guru, I didn't expect to meet such a young guy. Jack launched enthusiastically into an explanation of the internet. Yang recalled Jack talked. Nonstop for two hours, although Yang indicated the government was unable to pay for the project as its impact was unknown, Jack and his team quickly built the site, hosted by China Pages, in cooperation with a local unit of Zhejiang Telecom called Hangzhou Default Communications, a partnership that soon after would sour dramatically. The site was one of the first projects in a national initiative to bring the Chinese government online. Generating a lot of publicity for Zhejiang, within a few days, Yang received congratulatory emails from overseas, including from members of the U.S. Congress. The coverage also boosted Jack's profile. A local newspaper ran a feature story on his company and his dramatic first visit to the United States. But the publicity also triggered problems for Jack and the official who had commissioned him. One of Yang's colleagues reported him to the provincial government, accusing him of. Hobnobbing with a Gutehu, the disgruntled colleague's report thundered that government information dissemination was a serious issue. How could it be handled and published via a Gutehu? After encountering resistance at the local level, Jack started to spend most of his time in Beijing. There, he met up with Jasmine Gong of Ying Highway. The two did not hit it off. Jack later sharing his first impressions. I thought if the internet's demise comes one day, hers will be earlier than mine. I was already very idealistic, but here was someone who was even more idealistic than me. Jack and his partner He Yibing set about raising the profile of China Pages in Beijing. Jack had brought with him some articles he had written about the internet, and asked his friends to help publish them. In Beijing, thanks to a relationship with a driver at the publication, who was introduced by a friend. He met Sun Yinjun, deputy editor in chief of China Trade News. Sun was impressed by China Pages and invited Jack to give a lecture about the internet to his colleagues. Afterward, he published a front-page article on Jack and his company. While Jack was good at gaining publicity, China Pages still wasn't winning much business, and its efforts to open doors with the central government came to naught. In July 1996, China's national broadcaster. China Central Television broadcast a documentary called "Ma Yun the Scholar," which showed Jack being rebuffed by a government official. The documentary was produced by Fan Qinman, married to the famous director Zhang Xinjiang, who had brought a number of Xinjiang novels to the screen. Fan was also from Hangzhou and sympathetic to Jack's cause. As she filmed Jack getting shown the cold shoulder, 
Fon became increasingly concerned for Jack's prospects. He no longer had his base in Hangzhou and was crushed in Beijing. He was almost bankrupt. In the documentary, through a window to the Beijing streets outside, Jack made a resolution to himself. In a few years, you won't treat me like this. In a few years, you will all know what I do. And I won't be in dire straits in Beijing. The problem for China Pages was that it really was just a directory. The site was pretty rudimentary, merely listings of a company's products for sale. There was no way for prospective customers to make purchases online, so there was a limit on what China Pages could charge for its services. Squeezed Out China Pages was running out of cash to meet its payroll. Switching sales staff to commission-based pay relieved the pressure for a while, as did a 10,000 yuan contract from a client in the textile industry. But China Pages was in a vulnerable state. Yet, things were about to get much worse. The company that had worked with China Pages to build the Zhejiang government website, Hangzhou D4 Communication, made a bid to take over the company. China Pages was a small, privately owned company, but Hangzhou D4 was a unit of powerful SOE Zhejiang Telecom. In February 1996, the two entered into a joint venture, D4 Hope. D4 had a 70% stake in the venture, investing 1.4 million renminbi, $170,000. Jack would remain the general manager, and China Pages would hold the remaining 30%, which was valued at 600,000 renminbi, $70,000. At the time, this seemed like a significant achievement for a tiny cash-strapped company. Zhang Jinjian, then an official with Hangzhou Telecom, termed it the first merger and acquisition transaction in the history of China's Internet. Local media provided positive coverage of the joint venture. But the reality was a lot more sinister. Jack had discovered that when working with China Pages on the Zhejiang government website, D4 had registered the domain name www.chinesepages.com, very similar to his own ventures, www.chinapages.com, and a new company called China Yellow Pages. Yet because D4 was a subsidiary of a powerful SOE, Jack couldn't fight back. Gritting his teeth, he had to give interviews with local media lauding the new venture. The establishment of D4 Highball will further strengthen China Pages. He concluded by saying, we have every reason to believe, with the right policies of the party and the state, and with the tremendous support from every walk of life in the society, China Pages will surely achieve great success. China's information high-speed train will be faster and faster. Years later, after Alibaba had become successful, Jack was free to comment on the experience. China Pages was dwarfed by its new partner, and while Jack was the general manager, the position turned out to be of little value. When the joint venture was formed, disaster followed. They had five votes on the board, and we had two. Whenever there was a board meeting, whatever ideas I put forward, if one of them voted against it, the rest of them followed suit. During five or six board meetings, none of our ideas were passed. Jack had lost control of his pioneering venture. At that time, I called myself a blind man riding on the back of blind tigers. Without knowing anything about technology or computers, I started the first company. And after years of terrible experience, 
we failed. The China Pages episode provided him with some important lessons, as well as good material for his speeches, such as, It is difficult for an elephant to trample an ant to death as long as you can dodge well. And, With good strategies, you will definitely survive. To this day, I've realized one thing. Don't be nervous if you face huge competition in the future. He would later draw on his experiences when taking Alibaba into battle against eBay in the David versus Goliath struggle that would raise his profile on the global stage. Jack also points to China Pages as influencing the way he would structure his subsequent ventures. From then on, I have held a firm belief. When I start businesses in the future, I will never hold the controlling stake of a company, making those controlled by me suffer. I will give plenty of understanding and support to lower levels. I have never once had a controlling stake at Alibaba. I am proud of this. I am the CEO of the company because I lead it with my wisdom, courage, and resourcefulness, not capital. In November 1997, Jack convened an off-site meeting with the China Pages team in Tonglu, announcing that he was giving up his stake in China Pages and moving to Beijing, leaving his partner, He Yibing, as CEO. Jack's invented quote that the Internet would change everything was right. The problem was he had launched his venture too soon. Jack put his dreams on hold, taking a job in Beijing at a unit of the Ministry of Foreign Trade and Economic Cooperation, MOFTEC. There he was like a fish out of water, counting the days until he could jump back into the entrepreneurial sea of China's Internet, which was about to get a whole lot bigger. Chapter 6 Bubble and Birth Alibaba might as well be known as 1001 Mistakes, but there were three main reasons why we survived. We didn't have any money, we didn't have any technology, and we didn't have a plan. Jack Ma Third time lucky. After his struggles with Hope Translation and China Pages and an uncomfortable period working for the government in Beijing, Jack went on to found Alibaba at the beginning of 1999. But extricating himself from China Pages and then from his government job cost him two years. Meanwhile, other Internet entrepreneurs in China began to gain traction. Without a venture of his own, Jack was running the risk of becoming irrelevant. Just as Jack had lost control of China Pages to his SOE-linked partner, in Beijing, Jasmine Zhuang had been forced out of Ying Haiwei by her largest shareholder, rumored to be connected with China's Ministry of State Security. Other entrepreneurs, especially those who had set up Internet service providers, ISPs, to roll out dial-up services to consumers, found themselves squeezed out by large SOEs like China Telecom. Yun Tao from Beijing-based ISP Senpok summed it up. It is not yet possible to make money in China on the Internet. I have been at it for the last few years, and I tell you, I am bleeding now. While the telecom SOEs were actively protecting their turf from encroachment by the private sector, China's state-owned media companies proved surprisingly incapable of competing with entrepreneurs building out Internet content businesses. A new generation of Internet entrepreneurs was coming to the fore in China, inspired by Yahoo!, the most influential company of the dot-com boom gaining speed in the United States. Listed in 1996, 
Yahoo at first commanded little attention from investors. They preferred established technology companies, which they could value with traditional measures such as price-earning ratios, P.E. ratios. But Yahoo and its generation of dot-com companies were years from becoming profitable. Fortune magazine's Joe Nocera later summed up the valuation challenge. You can't have a P&E ratio when you have no E. But all of this started to change in the summer of 1998. Yahoo's shares ran up more than 80% in just five weeks, taking the company's valuation to $9 billion and making billionaires of its Stanford co-founders Jerry Yang, Yang Juang in Chinese, and David Filo. The dot-coms that had sprouted up in Silicon Valley now suddenly were the center of attention for Wall Street, too. In China, the Taiwan-born Jerry Yang became a hero. The public was fascinated to learn how an immigrant to the United States had become a billionaire before the age of 30. Suddenly, there was a flurry of interest in Yahoo's portal business model, its directories, and search engine connecting users to the rapidly expanding universe of online content. Chinese portals, or Menghu, literally gateway, began to appear. A triumvirate soon emerged as the country's portal pioneers, Wang Zhidong, Charles Zhang, and William Ding. Unlike Jack, they had all excelled at their studies and had strong technical backgrounds. The firms they founded were Sina, Sohu, and NetEase. Portal Pioneers Wang Zhidong, the founder of Sina, was already well-known, famous for having created several popular Chinese-language software applications, BD Win, Chinese Star, and Rich Win, that helped people in China use the Microsoft Windows operating system. Born in 1967 to poor but well-educated parents in South China's Guangdong province, Wang excelled in math and science. He secured a place at Peking University, where he studied radio electronics. In 1997, Wang was the first of the three portal pioneers to raise significant outside investment, nearly $7 million, for his firm Stone Rich Site, based on his proven track record as a software developer. In the summer 1998, he launched a dedicated website featuring soccer results in time for the FIFA World Cup held that year in France. This generated a lot of traffic, and the company shifted its focus from software to the Internet, later merging with another company to become Sina. Charles Zhang, Zhang Chaoyang, the founder of Sohu, was born in Qian. One month younger than Jack, he won entry to Tsinghua University to study physics before heading on to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. After attaining a Ph.D. in physics, Charles stayed on as a postdoc working to foster U.S.-China relations through MIT's Industrial Liaison Program. Inspired by the success of Netscape and Yahoo, Charles decided to launch his own Internet company. His original plan was to launch it in the United States, but as a recent Chinese immigrant, he felt excluded from the mainstream, including being unable to attract the interest of the media, something unlike the two other media-shy portal founders he was particularly attached to. I constantly thought I was an outsider. For example, here in China, I receive interview invitations, but in the States, I would probably never have been able to be on their news shows. 
so I came back. Charles returned to Beijing in 1996. He set up his company with the encouragement and financial support of two MIT professors, including Ed Roberts, who at the time of Sohu's IPO four years later held a 5% stake. Charles was the sole returning student, known as Sea Turtle, Hai Gui, of the Three Pioneers. His greater exposure to the U.S. technology scene gave Charles a head start. In February 1998, he was the first of the three to launch a Chinese-language search engine and a website directly inspired by Yahoo, even down to the name he chose for his venture, Sohu.com, later changing the name to Sohu.com. William Ding, Ding Lei, was born in Ningbo seven years after Jack. He studied computer science in a technology university in Chengdu. After returning home to Ningbo to work for the local branch of China Telecom, William moved to Guangzhou in southern China to work for the U.S. database company Sybase, then for a local technology firm. In 1997, he launched his own venture, which rolled out the first free bilingual email service in China. William's venture soon became profitable with the income generated by licensing the email software to other companies. In the summer of 1998, William switched his business from software development to the Internet and launched his website netease.com. Initially popular in southern China, NetEase quickly signed up email users all over the country, 1.4 million by the end of 1999. While Wang Zhidong, Charles, and William were surfing the waves of China's exciting new dot-com sea, Jack was languishing on the dusty dot-gov shore. His job title was General Manager of InfoShare Technology, a company set up by the China International Electronic Commerce Center, CIECC, itself a unit of a department of MovTech. At CIECC, Jack led the development of MovTech's official website, www.movtech.gov.cn, which launched in March 1998. Calling some of his China Pages colleagues to join him in Beijing, Jack then developed another website for MovTech, www.chinamarket.com.cn, which launched on July 1, 1998. The China Market site, which listed more than 8,000 commodities divided into six categories, invited visitors to post supply and demand information and enter into confidential business negotiations in encrypted business chat rooms. The new site attracted the praise of government officials, including MovTech Minister Shi Guangsheng, who called it a solid step by China to move into the age of e-commerce. The official Chinese government news agency, Xinhua, commended the site for its information reliability and orderly operation, with all visitors vetted by the government to ensure that they were valid businesses. The reality, though, was that all the offline bureaucracy involved in registering on the website made it unappealing to businesses, especially because the website could not facilitate any orders or payments. In other words, it was just a bigger and government-backed version of China Pages. Jack fervently believed in the unfolding age of e-commerce, but he also knew that the future belonged to entrepreneurs, later recalling that it was too tiring doing e-commerce in the government. E-commerce should start with private enterprises. Working for CIECC, Jack was buried by the many layers of government officials above him, including Ching Wei, 
his fierce boss at CIECC. Jack became increasingly frustrated as he watched the triumvirate of portal pioneers gain momentum. Here I was. I had been practicing for five years in the Internet field, Jack recalled. Everything was changing very quickly. If I stayed in Beijing, I couldn't do something really big. I couldn't realize my dreams as a public servant. But his government perch ended up giving Jack another lucky break. His first encounter with Jerry Yang, the co-founder of Yahoo. In the coming years, the fates of Jack Ma and Jerry Yang would become even more closely intertwined. As the general manager of InfoShare and a fluent English speaker, Jack was asked to receive Jerry Yang and his colleagues, who in late 1997 came to Beijing to look for opportunities for Yahoo in China. Jack's experience as a self-appointed tour guide in Hangzhou came in handy now in Beijing, since Jerry was traveling with his younger brother Ken and was keen to see some of the sights. Jack introduced him to his wife, Kathy, and they took Jerry, Jerry's brother, and Yahoo Vice President Heather Killen to visit Beihai Park, opposite the Forbidden City and the Great Wall. Here, they took a photo that would play an important role in helping separate Jack from the pack, illustrating Jack's early meeting with the global king of the Internet at the time. On the visit, Jack also took Jerry and Heather to meet the vice minister of Movtech. Jack's charm offensive paid off. In October 1998, InfoShare was appointed the exclusive sales agent for Yahoo in China. But Jack was already actively planning to slip free of the constraints of government. Back at the Great Wall, Jack organized an off-site meeting with some of his InfoShare colleagues, an outing since fated by the company as the unofficial launch of Alibaba. But Jack was worried about the consequences for him and his planned new venture of walking out of his government job. A friend advised Jack to feign illness, a common ruse in China to escape from such predicaments. Jack did, in fact, come down with appendicitis a few months later, but by then he was already back in Hangzhou, and his new venture was well underway. What's in a name? Jack decided to call his new venture Alibaba, a curious name for a Chinese company. Jack has been asked many times why he chose an Arabic name for his company rather than something derived from his passion for Chinese martial arts or folklore. Jack was attracted, he said, by the open sesame imagery, since he hoped to achieve an opening for the small and medium-sized enterprises he was targeting. He was also looking for a name that traveled well, and Alibaba is a name that is easy to pronounce in many languages. He liked the name since it came at the beginning of the alphabet. Whatever you talk about, Alibaba is always on top. In China, a song titled Alibaba is a Happy Young Man was popular at the time, but Jack says the idea came to him for the website on a trip to San Francisco. I was having lunch, and a waitress came. I asked her, Do you know about Alibaba? She said, Yes. What is Alibaba? And she said, Open Sesame. So I went down to the street and asked about ten to twenty people. They all knew about Alibaba, Forty Thieves, and Open Sesame. I think this is a good name. But there was a problem. The domain name Alibaba.com was registered to a Canadian man who was asking for $4,000 to transfer it over, a transaction that involved some risk if he didn't hold up his side of the bargain. So Jack launched the Alibaba site using 
alibabaonline.com and alibaba-online.com instead. Alibaba co-founder Lucy Pang recalled how the early team members had joked they were working for AOL, short for Alibaba Online. Jack soon after decided to buy the Alibaba.com domain name. Alibaba Executive Vice Chairman Joe Tsai later recounted to me that Jack was nervous about wiring funds to the Canadian owner before he could be assured of gaining control, a problem that the escrow function of Alipay would later solve. He didn't have that kind of money, so was scrounging around. But Jack is a very savvy businessman. He has that innate ability to say, All right, I'm going to trust this guy. A lot of entrepreneurs don't trust other people. Jack went ahead with the wire transfer to the Canadian, who, true to national stereotypes, proved honest, and Jack gained control of Alibaba.com. The widespread recognition of the Alibaba name has saved Jack a lot of money in marketing expenses and a ready supply of imagery, such as the Forty Thieves and One Thousand and One Nights, and other elements he still often incorporates into his speeches. Lakeside Gardens Alibaba was launched in Hangzhou by Jack's friends, supporters, and colleagues, including some who joined him from China Pages and InfoShare. Jack convened a meeting on February 21, 1999, at his Lakeside Gardens, Hupan Huayan, apartment in Hangzhou. Confident in his future success, he arranged for the meeting to be filmed, with the team seated around him in a semicircle, some wearing coats to fend off the damp cold inside the chilly apartment, Jack asked his converts to ponder the question, in the next five to ten years, what will Alibaba become? Answering his own question, he said that, our competitors are not in China, but in Silicon Valley. We should position Alibaba as an international website. The reality was that Jack, late to the portal game, now dominated by Sinha, Sohu, and NetEase, had to find his own niche in the China Internet market. The portals were trying to capture the growing number of individual users coming online, but Jack was going to stick with what he knew best, small businesses. In contrast to the business-to-business -business sites in the United States that were focused on large companies, Jack decided to focus on the shrimp. He found inspiration from his favorite movie, Forrest Gump in which Gump makes a fortune from fishing shrimp after a storm. American B2B, business-to-business, -business, sites are whales, but 85% of the fish in the sea are shrimp-sized. I don't know anyone who makes money from whales, but I've seen many making money from shrimp. When Jack created Alibaba in early 1999, China had only 2 million Internet users. But this would double in six months, then double again, reaching 9 million by the end of the year. By the summer of 2000, there were 17 million online. Personal computers still cost a hefty $1,500, but prices began to fall as new market entrants like Dell set up shop in competition with homegrown companies Founder, Great Wall, and Legend, later rebranded as Lenovo. Sales of new PCs, still going mostly to businesses or government users, hit 5 million in 1999. The government's policy of informatization was making the Internet more affordable. Getting a connection from the local phone company still took months and could cost as much as $600. But in March 1999, the government scrapped the installation fee for second phone lines 
and made it cheaper to surf online, too, cutting the average price from $70 per month in 1997 to only $9 by the end of 1999. Millions of young, educated people were coming online at their colleges or workplaces, others at the thousands of Internet cafes that were mushrooming across the country. Yahoo's business model in the United States was to make money from the growing market for online advertising. The three China portals, in turn, planned to grab a piece of a fast-growing online advertising cake, which grew to $12 million in 1999 from only $3 million the year before. But even in the States, Yahoo was losing money. And in China, the bulk of Internet users had little disposable income to excite advertisers. The potential revenues for the portals were way below their expenditures. Yet, in the upside-down logic of the unfolding dot-com boom, losses were not only acceptable, but worn as a badge of honor. The bigger the loss, the grander a firm's ambition. Venture capital, VC firms, were there to bridge the gap. Before Alibaba was even out of the starting gate, Sina, Sohu, and NetEase had started to win the backing of VCs, competing aggressively for new users and investment. Sina was formed by the December 1998 merger of Wang Zhidong's firm SRS with the U.S. company Sinanet, founded by three Taiwan-born students at Stanford University, Daniel Mao, an early investor in SRS at the Walden International Investment Group, helped broker the merger. Sina.com was launched in April 1999 and the following month raised $25 million in VC from investors, including Goldman Sachs, Walden, and Japan's SoftBank. Sohu raised $10 million in 1998 and more funding the following year on the back of soaring traffic on its Chinese-language search engine. Founder Charles Shang was relishing his newfound celebrity status in China and he brought on Stanford-educated returnee Victor Ku, who later left to found Yaoqiu, China's answer to YouTube, to beef up Sohu's management. He also tried, unsuccessfully, to hire Jack as his COO. NetEase was the last of the three portals to raise VC funding for the simple reason that founder William Ding didn't really need to. He could count on a steady flow of licensing revenues from the webmail software he had personally developed. William Ding had by far the highest equity stake of any portal founder, 58.5%, when his company went public in 2000. Watching from the sidelines, Jack realized he would have to hustle if he was to ever catch the attention of VCs or catch up with the portal pioneers who were speeding off into the distance. For Alibaba to thrive, he would have to foster a relentless work ethic, ensuring a clean break from the bureaucratic culture that he and some of his colleagues had just left behind in Beijing. Jack exhorted the group assembled in his apartment to learn the hard-working spirit of Silicon Valley. If we go to work at 8 a.m. and get off work at 5 p.m., this is not a high-tech company, and Alibaba will never be successful. Jack likes to put Silicon Valley companies on a pedestal, but he also likes to rally his team by saying Alibaba could knock them off it. Americans are strong at hardware and systems, but in software and information management, Chinese brains are just as good as American. I believe that one of us can be worth ten of them. Alibaba was formed at a time when the inflating dot-com valuations made even his loyal converts nervous about whether the bubble would soon burst. Speaking to them in his apartment, 
Jack sought to reassure them. Has the Internet reached its peak? Have we done enough? Is it too late for us to follow? Don't worry. I don't think the dream of the Internet will burst. We will have to pay a very painful price in the next three to five years. It is the only way we can succeed in the future. To rally the troops, Jack set a goal of achieving an IPO within three years. Once we become a listed company, what each and every one of us will gain is not this apartment, but 50 apartments like this. We are just charging forward. Team spirit is very, very important. When we charge forward, even if we lose, we still have the team. We still have each other to support. What on earth are you afraid of? Although Jack and Kathy together were the lead shareholders, Alibaba was co-founded by a total of 18 people, six of whom were women. None came from privileged backgrounds, prestigious universities, or famous companies. This was a team of regular people, bound together by Jack's energy and his unconventional management methods. To build team spirit, Jack drew on his love of Jin Yong's novels and gave each of his Alibaba team members nicknames. His own nickname was Feng Chin Yang. In Jin Yong's book, Swordsman, Feng is a reclusive sword and kung fu master preparing young apprentices to be heroes. As a former teacher, Jack identified with Feng and his unpredictable yet nurturing character. Zhou Tsai comes to Hangzhou. In May 1999, Jack met Zhou Tsai, a Taiwanese-born investor then living in Hong Kong. Joe would become Jack's right-hand man, a role he still performs more than 17 years later. The association between the two would become one of the most profitable and enduring partnerships in Chinese business. Jack takes pride in being 100% made in China. Yet, starting with Joe Tsai, a number of born-in-Taiwan individuals would make major contributions to Alibaba's success, just as they have to many technology companies in Silicon Valley. I first met Joe at the beginning of Alibaba's journey in 1999, shortly after he'd joined. In the spring of 2015, I traveled back to Hangzhou to understand what prompted Joe to take such a gamble on Jack. Although the two men were born in the same year, they could hardly be more different. Joe came from a prestigious family, and he had a top-tier academic and professional background. At the age of 13, speaking hardly any English, Joe was sent off from Taiwan to the Lawrenceville School, an elite boarding school in New Jersey. There, Joe excelled at his studies as well as at lacrosse, which he credits with helping him assimilate into American culture and learn the importance of working in a team. The sport taught me life lessons about teamwork and perseverance. While I never got past playing on the third midfield line, being part of the team was the best experience of my life. Joe won entrance to Yale College where he studied economics and East Asian studies and proceeded on to Yale Law School. After graduating, he began his career in New York with the storied law firm Sullivan and Cromwell and a short stint at a management buyout firm. But Joe wanted to gain investment experience in Asia. He moved to Hong Kong to work for investor AB, the investment arm of Sweden's powerful Wallenberg family. As the dot-com boom gained momentum, Joe started looking out for opportunities to team up with an entrepreneur. I asked Joe how he came to connect with Jack. I wanted to be more intimately involved in technology startups, 
Because I was making investments for investor sitting on boards, I always felt a layer of distance between the board and the management. I said to myself, I should be involved in the operation. Joe first heard about Jack from family friend Jerry Wu, a Taiwanese businessman who ran a communications startup. After Jerry came back from Hangzhou, he contacted Joe, telling him, You have to go and meet this guy Jack Ma in Hangzhou. He's kind of crazy. He's got a big vision. Wu was hoping Alibaba might take over his struggling startup and asked Joe for his help. Joe agreed and hopped on a plane from Hong Kong to Hangzhou to meet Jack in the Lakeside Gardens apartment. I still can remember the first sight of the apartment. It reminded me of my grandmother's apartment in Taipei. When you walked into the building, the stairway was old and narrow. About ten pairs of shoes were in front of the apartment. It was a smelly place. I was in a suit. It was May, hot and humid. Joe remembers how Jack outlined his ambitious goal for Alibaba, to help millions of Chinese factories find an outlet overseas for their goods. The factory owners lacked the skills to market their products themselves and, Jack explained, had little choice but to sell their goods through state-owned trading companies. Jack was proposing to cut out the middleman, always a compelling idea. Joe was intrigued by Jack as he talked, sitting backwards in a chair, clapping like someone from a kung fu novel. Listening intently as Jack switched effortlessly in and out of fluent English, Joe was impressed. This guy is good, he thought to himself. When Jack spoke Mandarin, he did so in an accent that reminded Joe of his own grandfather, whose ancestral home was in Hezhou, near Hangzhou. Speaking in Mandarin, Joe had started the conversation by apologizing to Jack that he couldn't speak the Hangzhou dialect. Thinking that it might help establish a rapport, Joe added, I do speak Shanghainese. My parents grew up in Shanghai. Looking back on that first meeting, Joe laughs. I hadn't realized that Hangzhou people hate Shanghainese. They think they are too sly, too commercial, too money-oriented. Later on, Jack told me that there are three kinds of people he doesn't trust. Shanghainese, Taiwanese, and Hong Kong people. But somehow, Jack and Joe, the Shanghainese-speaking Taiwanese who lived in Hong Kong, hit it off. It was fate that the two of us ended up working together. Joe flew back to Hong Kong and shared his excitement about Jack and Alibaba with his wife, Clara. But trading a well-paying job in Hong Kong for a startup in Hangzhou was a big risk, especially since Clara was expecting their first child. So Clara suggested she travel with Joe back to Hangzhou. Jack remembers their visit. Clara told him she wanted to see Alibaba because her husband was crazy about it. If I agree with him, then I am crazy. But if I don't agree, he will hate me his whole life. Joe, too, was thinking carefully before taking the plunge. I went back a second time because I saw something in Jack, not just the vision, the sparks in his eyes, but a team of people, his loyal followers. They believed in the vision. I said to myself, if I am going to join a group of people, this is the one. There is a clear leader, the glue to the whole thing. I just felt a real affinity to Jack. I mean, who wouldn't? Jack struck Joe as being very different from other entrepreneurs he'd met or read about, telling Joe that, to him, friends are as important as family. His definition of friends includes colleagues. 
When you try to compare Jack with, say, Steve Jobs, they are different people, different to the core. Joe liked the fact that Jack was open about his own shortcomings. I think me coming into the scene was very novel. I'm the guy who knew finance. I was a lawyer before. I could help incorporate a company, and I could help raise capital. So immediately from day one, I think we built a bond. When I first met Joe, I found him very calm and reserved, in many ways the polar opposite of Jack's exuberance and unpredictability. As I spent more time working with him, I came to appreciate how Joe's professionalism in, say, carefully drafting a contract created the structure for Alibaba to harness Jack's energy and enthusiasm. Another China Internet founder I spoke to agreed. In the early days, especially, Joe kept Jack in check. Joe is self-effacing about his role at the company. When I asked him whether he considered himself Jack's consigliere, he told him he prefers to think of himself as Jack's interpreter. Jack is very smart, but Jack sometimes says things that people misinterpret, so I am there to explain things. Jack is effusive in his praise of Joe, often saluting him for the risk he took on joining Alibaba back in 1999. To an audience a few years ago in Taipei, Jack said, How many would give up a well-paying job like him? He added, This is courage. This is action. This is the real dream. Joe did take a gamble back in 1999, but it wasn't a blind bet. Joe was able to increase his chances of backing a winner by first getting the company ready to raise capital, then taking the lead in finding its first investor. Joe told his boss at Investor AB, where he would keep his job for now, that he would spend his personal time helping an entrepreneur he had met in China. Joe got to work sorting out the paperwork at Alibaba. As with many startups, it was a bit of a mess. When I got to Hangzhou, Jack didn't even have a company. He hadn't incorporated anything yet. It was just a website. Joe's first task was to document Alibaba's shareholders. I called him up and said, Jack, I'm incorporating the company. Who are the shareholders? He faxed me a list of the names. My jaw dropped, because every single one of those kids in the apartment was on the list as a shareholder. So from day one, he gave away quite a lot of equity. But as Joe looked through the 18 names, he realized that everybody was a crucial part of the team, whether an engineer or in customer service. He laughed as he recalled the nickname Potato for co-founder Lucy Pang, which she used when answering emails sent from Alibaba's Western customers. Next, he wanted to get an understanding of Alibaba's customers. He asked the team how many there were. When told there were 28,000, Joe replied, Wow, that's a big number. Yet all of the customer information was being stored manually, each one on a piece of paper stuffed into a book with all the others. Alibaba wasn't generating any revenue and urgently needed to raise capital. Of course, at that time, no capital was available in China. It was all American. Looking at how Sina, Sohu, and NetEase had done it, Joe registered an offshore company, writing out a personal check for $20,000 to a law firm, Fenwick & West, to ready Alibaba's corporate structure to receive venture capital investment. All they needed now was to find the investors. He set out with Jack for San Francisco. On arrival, they checked into a cheap hotel off Union Square, then headed down the next morning to Palo Alto to meet some VCs.
the meetings did not go well. Joe recalls being peppered with questions. What are you trying to do? What's your business model? But they didn't even have a pitch book. I had tried to prepare something like a business plan. But Jack said he didn't do business plans, telling Joe, I just want to go and meet people and talk to them about it. The trip was a failure. Although they did have one promising lead from a breakfast meeting in Palo Alto with a Singapore-based investor, Thomas Eng, of Venture TDF, the VCs weren't really interested in business-to-business, B2B, e-commerce, which seemed dull compared to the excitement surrounding Yahoo, which Sina, Sohu, and NetEase were all able to tap into. There were a couple of B2B examples that raised venture money, Ariba.com and Commerce One, but they were U.S.-based and served a much more mature market than Alibaba. Other emerging China e-commerce players were beginning to have some success at fundraising. One was a consumer e-commerce venture called 8848.net. Launched in April 1999 and modeling its business on Amazon, 8848 sold books, software, electronics, and other local items, such as IP phone calling cards that were popular at the time. It had a well-established backer in 46-year-old Charles Xu, Xu Bichwin. Xu had studied at UC Berkeley at the same time as SoftBank founder Masayoshi Son. The chairman of 8848, Wang Juntao, enjoyed a higher profile in China media circles than Jack. NetEase, too, was experimenting with consumer e-commerce, holding one of China's first online auctions in July 1999, when the site sold 100 PCs for a total of $150,000. Another new business, modeled on eBay, was also emerging. The Shanghai-based firm EachNet, led by a brilliant young Harvard-educated returnee, Xiao Ibo, also known as Bo Xiao. Yet Jack was convinced that as the largest supplier of labor-intensive commodities to the world, China was ready for B2B e-commerce. But other entrepreneurs had come to the same conclusion. A California-based company had launched a B2B website called MeetChina.com and secured the backing of the venture capital firm IDG. In the coming year or so, MeetChina.com would raise more than $40 million in venture capital, significantly more than Alibaba. Meet China would also excel at courting the support of governments on both sides of the Pacific. In Beijing, MeetChina.com's founders claimed a special relationship with the powerful Ministry of Information Industry. At its April 1999 launch, the company promoted itself as China's first major government-sponsored business-to-business Internet portal. Co-founder Kenneth Leonard talked up his ties in Washington, D.C., claiming a business relationship with Neil Bush, the younger brother of George W. and Jeb Bush, and securing an invitation to the White House and publicity for the company's Asia-wide e-commerce push by signing an agreement in Vietnam during Bill and Hillary Clinton's groundbreaking presidential visit to the country the following year. Meet China was good at PR in China, too. One of its co-founders, Tom Rosenthal, told the Wall Street Journal, We've got the services to make buying from China as easy as buying from a local hardware store. In the following months, Meet China opened nine offices and hired more than 250 staff across China, signing impressive-sounding partnerships with a raft of companies, including Dun & Bradstreet and Western Union. B2B websites backed by Chinese government agencies were stepping up their efforts, too, 
including ChinaMarket.com, which Jack had helped set up. Watching the traction Alibaba was gaining with companies in Zhejiang Province, neighboring Jiangsu Province launched its own website, MadeInChina.com, as well. But having just escaped the clutches of government, Jack was convinced that his customer-first approach would prevail over other websites that focused foremost on whining and dining government officials. None of these sites would end up being Alibaba's main competitor. Instead, Jack's biggest rival was not even a new economy company at all. It was an old-school publisher of trade magazines. Global Sources had been around for more than three decades. The company was run by its founder, Merle Hinrichs, a reclusive American whose base of operations was his 160-foot yacht anchored in the Philippines. Hinrichs was a native of Hastings, Nebraska, but had been a resident of Asia since 1965. He had built up his company, originally known as Asian Sources Media Group, by churning out thick trade catalogs stuffed with advertisements from manufacturers in Asia of electronics, computer products, watches, toys, and sporting goods. Sent to buyers such as Walmart, the magazine generated hundreds of millions of dollars of orders per year. Reluctant to cannibalize its profitable offline business, Global Sources was nervous about building a presence on the web. Hinrichs was dismissive of B2B sites. Suppliers and buyers were happy with the fax machine, as that was cheap and simple to use. But as Internet access spread, companies like Alibaba had an opportunity to pitch themselves as the new face of Asian business. Although Alibaba was struggling to convince investors to back it, the company started to have more success with the media, all thanks to Jack's charisma and gift of gab. On April 17, 1999, The Economist ran an article titled Asia Online. Its lead sentence consisted of the prophetic statement that America has Jeff Bezos, China has Jack Ma Yun. Joe read that article on his flight up to Hangzhou to meet Jack, further piquing his interest in Alibaba. The article was written by Chris Anderson, then based in Hong Kong. I contacted him to ask him what prompted him to write about Jack in such glowing terms. After more than a decade as editor-in-chief of Wired magazine, Chris lives today in Berkeley, California, where he is the co-founder and CEO of 3D Robotics, a drone manufacturing company. Chris recalled his first meeting with Jack in early 1999 in Hong Kong. Jack came to see me with what was then an idea for Alibaba. I thought it was a great business, but a terrible name. Needless to say, he didn't take my advice, but we've remained friends since. Chris explained to me that in his Economist article, he had compared Jack to Jeff Bezos because both are clever entrepreneurs who have grown rich by being among the first to exploit the Internet's potential. But there the similarities end. Of course, Jack wouldn't become truly rich for many years yet, but the fact that Chris had been impressed by his infectious enthusiasm is an early example of how Jack Magic has played a key role in Alibaba's rise. China.com But unbeknownst to Jack and Joe, as they headed empty-handed from Silicon Valley back to Asia, their fortunes were about to be transformed, thanks to an event that signaled the beginning of the China Internet gold rush, the NASDAQ IPO of China.com. China.com operated by the company China.com, 
part of China Internet Corporation, CIC, was led by a dealmaker in Hong Kong called Peter Yip. Yip was an unlikely candidate for a China Internet entrepreneur. He wasn't from China, born in Singapore. He was based in Hong Kong and was a decade or so older than Jack and the Portal founders. Few people in China had ever heard of him or his website. But just as dot-com investing began to reach a fever pitch in the United States, CIC found itself sitting on some very important assets. The domain names China.com, HongKong.com, and Taiwan.com. Using these as leverage, Yip signed on some influential backers, including the unlikely bedfellows America Online and Xinhua, China's state news agency. To AOL, he offered his services as a gatekeeper to the China market. To Chinhua, he promised to build a walled garden of content, filtering out undesirable content on the Internet. Yip called his vision the China Wide Web. In a speech at Harvard University, he argued that much of the content on the Internet was not relevant to most Chinese. Touting the Chinhua backing, he claimed that the Chinese government had established an Internet strategy and asked me to help them create a vehicle to allow people to participate. The news area of his China.com website carried the terrifying tagline, We do the surfing for you. But Chinese users wanted access to the full Internet, something that local entrepreneurs, such as the three portal pioneers, were working hard to enable. Yip's efforts failed to gain traction with Internet users in China. His know-who approach, based on relationships, was beaten out by the know-how smarts of China's new generation of tech-savvy Internet entrepreneurs. But Peter Yip beat out his mainland Chinese rivals in one important aspect. He really knew how to raise money, scoring a $34 million investment in China.com from AOL, then in July 1999, an IPO for the company on the NASDAQ. People working in China's Internet sector were fiercely critical of the company and its claims, I was one of them, telling the New York Times that China.com was out of step with what Internet users in China are about, and that companies that make deals with them are actually doing themselves a disservice. In June 1999, I wrote a report warning that if China.com was to IPO before the real Chinese portals, it would represent the triumph of form over substance and effectively spoil the market for mainland Chinese Internet companies. How wrong I was. Instead of extinguishing the opportunity for China tech IPOs, China.com lit the market on fire. On July 13, 1999, China.com listed its shares on the NASDAQ. The stock ticker for the company was as catchy as its website, China. Listing at $20, the stock closed that day at $67. What's in a name? In the case of China.com, a company that people in China had hardly ever heard of, the answer was $84 million, the amount the company raised in the IPO, to which the company added a then-massive $400 million the following February in a secondary offering, valuing the company at $5 billion. The company raised so much money that it would be 11 years before it finally slipped into bankruptcy. The shockwaves from China.com's July 1999 IPO reverberated across the mainland's nascent tech community. How had a guy with a website that almost no one had heard of raised so much money overnight? 
The IPO unleashed a frenzy of investments and deal-making as entrepreneurs across the country concluded, if China.com can do it, so can I. Chapter 7 Backers Goldman and SoftBank The Internet is like beer. The good stuff is at the bottom. Without the bubbles, the beer is flat, and nobody would want to drink it. Jack Ma On its first day of trading on the Nasdaq, China.com, a company with only $4 million in annual revenues, on which it had lost $9 million, closed the day worth $1.6 billion. Peter Yip had listed only a small number of shares, so investors cast around looking for other China Internet stocks to buy. The problem was, there weren't any. Seizing the opportunity, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs leapt into action. In Hong Kong, there was a sudden explosion of tech gatherings, speed-dating exercises between young entrepreneurs and the investors that wanted to back them. One of the largest meetups was called I&I, &I, short for Internet and Information Asia. The event had been around for a while, typically with a few people gathering around a table in one of the tiny bars of Lan Kwai Fong, just up the hill from the city's main central business district. But the China.com IPO changed all that. Suddenly, hundreds of people showed up at I&I, &I, the venues switching to five-star hotels like the Ritz-Carlton, as banks and law firms tripped over one another for the right to sponsor the champagne and hors d'oeuvres. Hong Kong was ready to package the deals, but the market and the entrepreneurs to build the companies were across the border in mainland China. Suddenly, Beijing and Shanghai were awash in dealmakers. The China Internet bubble had officially begun, and new dot-com ventures started to sprout up like weeds. Alibaba would have to fight for its share of sunlight. Media Coverage Before even the VCs had showed up, foreign media arrived to cover the China Internet story. Jack became a regular fixture at tech and investor conferences around the country, his comments so quotable that the Los Angeles Times called him a soundbite machine. Soon after the China.com IPO, a Businessweek magazine cover story named Jack one of China's webmasters, Alibaba had yet to generate meaningful revenues, but Businessweek predicted that investing in B2B e-commerce could mean an even bigger payoff than investing in China's three portals. On August 31, 1999, an article written by my colleague Ted Dean appeared in Hong Kong's leading English-language daily, the South China Morning Post. Ted had first met Jack a year or so earlier when Jack was still working for the government. In the article... Ted predicted that Alibaba may turn out to be a global powerhouse in B2B e-commerce. Jack laid out his ambition. We don't want to be number one in China. We want to be number one in the world. In our small investment consultancy, we were hearing a lot of those kinds of statements and were already becoming a bit cynical about the dot-com boom. But after interviewing Jack for the article in Hangzhou a few days earlier, Ted told me, there was something about Jack that was different. I knew I had to meet him. When Jack invited me to visit, I hopped on a train from Shanghai to Hangzhou. I booked myself back into the Shangri-La Hotel, the same hotel where Jack, as a boy, had first approached David Morley to practice his English. After checking in, I took a taxi over to the Lakeside Gardens apartment. 
I was immediately struck by Jack's infectious enthusiasm and capacity to charm, influenced, no doubt, by growing up in a household where both his parents practice ping-tong, the traditional art form that includes comedic routines. In his article, Ted had quoted Jack, saying, If you plan, you lose. If you don't plan, you win. After working in Beijing, the land of the five-year plan, I found Jack's spontaneity refreshing. Foreign professionals began to enter Jack's orbit, giving Alibaba an international flavor within months of its founding. Alibaba also had a strong component of female executives, adding to the achievement of women making up one-third of its founding team, in contrast to many Silicon Valley-based companies. Goldman Invests Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, shortly after their unsuccessful fundraising trip to Silicon Valley, Joe had started negotiations with Transpac, a Singapore-based fund, about investing in Alibaba. Soon they had agreed to a term sheet that would value Alibaba at $7 million. But Transpac insisted on an onerous provision, and Joe wanted to walk away. He then called up a friend at Goldman Sachs. Like Joe, Shirley Lin was born in Taiwan and educated in the United States. The two had met a decade earlier. For Alibaba, it would prove to have been a fateful encounter. In the summer of 2015, I met up with Shirley in New York to talk about Goldman Sachs' transformative investment in Alibaba in 1999. Shirley and I have known each other since 1999. We had been classmates at Morgan Stanley, the investment bank we joined fresh out of college. While I stayed on at Morgan Stanley, Shirley had left after a few years for Goldman Sachs to start making investments in technology and Internet companies across Asia. Ten years before the Alibaba deal, Shirley and Joe had met by chance on a long plane ride from Taipei to New York. I was going back to Harvard. He was going back to Yale. We were seated adjacent to each other. She remembers Joe's face was buried for most of the trip in a book on constitutional law. He remembers Shirley intently reading the Wall Street Journal, cover to cover. After a while, they struck up a conversation. Contemplating the books and exams that awaited them back at college, pretty soon we were both lamenting each other's fate, Shirley told me. As Jack and Joe had already discovered, there weren't many investment firms in Asia with much experience in technology companies. In 1999, Shirley was already busily placing bets on China Internet companies, ultimately investing in all three portals. Goldman invested directly in Sina and NetEase, and indirectly in Sohu. Goldman had given Shirley and her team a lot of leeway, provided she kept the investments below $5 million. This was peanuts to Goldman, whose principal investment area, PIA, unit would make $1 billion in investments in tech companies from 1995 to 2000, one quarter in companies based in Asia. With so few funds already on the ground in Asia, Shirley was bombarded with requests for investment from her Harvard classmates and other friends pursuing the new wave of dot-com riches. The quality of the business plans was pretty low, often simple copy-and-paste jobs. Shirley and her team worked around the clock, wading through stacks of pitch documents, investing, she estimates, in less than one in a thousand. While the easy route was to invest in companies with at least one known quantity, founders who were classmates or friends, for the China Internet story, Shirley had a strong preference in finding homegrown talent. 
I really thought that to invest in China, you have to know the local market. But scouring through China startups had its drawbacks. Traveling on unpaved roads in provincial cities surely felt more like a loan officer with the Asian Development Bank than an investment banker. She also had a hard time being taken seriously. Even though we were at Goldman, people in China didn't know who we were. They asked, Are you Mrs. Goldman? Are you married to the owner of this business? They thought Goldman and Sachs were two people who owned the company, and I must be married to one of them. So when Joe Tsai approached her about a startup run by a local entrepreneur in Hangzhou, she was interested, particularly when he told her he planned to join the company. Shirley decided to fly up from Hong Kong to Hangzhou to meet Jack in late September 1999. Jack, she recalled, was as local as it gets. I went up to the apartments, where they were all working 24-7. The whole place stank. Jack's ideas were not entirely original. They had been tried in other countries. But he was completely dedicated to making them work in China. I was moved by what I saw. As with Joe before her, Shirley was less impressed by the business itself than by the team, the real reason she would decide to invest. Who were they? What was their history? Knowing Joe checked one box. Seeing Jack and the team in action checked another. Really, it was all about Jack and his people. Shirley remembers being impressed by how hard Jack's wife, Kathy, was working. She and Jack toiled away, she recalled, like revolutionary comrades. Alibaba had been approached by other investors, but Shirley knew that the backing of Goldman would make all the difference for an unknown startup in China. They discussed the investment over tea. If Goldman invested, she told Jack and Joe, she would personally ensure Alibaba was known to the world. With B2B competitors like Meet China waiting in the wings and actively fundraising, the offer proved too tempting to resist. Shirley negotiated to acquire a majority stake in Alibaba for $5 million. She headed back to Hong Kong, where her colleagues Paul Yang and Oliver Weisberg drew up the term sheet for the investment. The following weekend, Shirley was swimming with her family at the Repulse Bay Beach on the south side of Hong Kong Island when her cell phone rang. It was Jack. He really wanted to do the deal, but asked Shirley to leave him more equity. If Goldman took a controlling stake in his company, he explained, he couldn't feel like a true entrepreneur. Jack told her how he'd put everything into the venture. This is my life, he said. Shirley replied, What do you mean, this is your life? You've only just started. Jack explained, But this is my third venture already. Jack finally convinced her. The term sheet for the investment had been drawn up, but there were brackets around the numbers, so it would be an easy change. Goldman would invest the $5 million for 500,000 shares, half the company, while retaining veto rights over key decisions. Just after she had agreed to the new terms, mid-conversation with Jack, she accidentally dropped her cell phone into the sea. Oops, she thought to herself. Well, I guess there goes five million dollars. Jack had succeeded in securing a big-name investor in what would prove a critical step in Alibaba's story. But he would also come to regret selling such a large stake in the company, 50%, which he would never recoup. In reality, though, Jack had little choice. He was an unproven entrepreneur, based in a provincial city in China, 
who was negotiating with a huge global financial institution. But having already given out a lot of equity to his co-founders, and now 50% to investors, he ended up with a much lower share of his company than many of his peers. Jack would later joke, only half kidding, that it was the worst deal I ever made. When Shirley took the deal to her investment committee, which oversaw all the fund's investments, she encountered an unexpected snag. They pushed back. If Goldman invested the full $5 million, the fund would need to gain the approval of their investors. Please get rid of some, they told her. So Shirley reduced Goldman's stake to 33%. Now she quickly had to find investors for the other 17%. Today, the thought of having to cast urgently around for buyers willing to pay $1.7 million for a 17% stake in Alibaba, now worth tens of billions of dollars, is laughable. In the end, she brought in Thomas Eng of Venture TDF, who had met Jack and Joe that summer in Palo Alto, for half a million dollars. Fidelity Growth Partners Asia came in for another half a million. Joe had already told his employer that he was going to join a startup in China. When Joe informed his boss, Galeazzo Scarampi, that he had found investors and was going to leave to join Alibaba, investor AB also came in for a slice. Transpac rounded out the balance of the $1.7 million investment alongside Goldman's $3.3 million. Some of the investors, including Venture TDF and Fidelity, held on to their stakes all the way through Alibaba's 2014 IPO, generating returns of billions of dollars. When the Goldman-led round was finalized on October 27, 1999, the investment cemented Joe's authority as Jack's right-hand man. The $5 million round led by Goldman was a start, but peanuts compared to the war chest of the three China portals, who were besieged by eager investors as the Nasdaq began its vertiginous climb, gaining 80% in eight months, valuing its component companies at $6.7 trillion in early 2000. All eyes were on the companies who positioned themselves as the Yahoo of China, as well as the moves of Yahoo itself in China. In September 1999, Yahoo!, then valued at $36 billion, announced a partnership with Founder, the largest local PC manufacturer at the time, targeting the mainland. At the same time, Sohu, Sina, and NetEase ramped up their fundraising. Sina would raise the most, including $60 million in November 1999 from investors, including Goldman Sachs and SoftBank, putting the company in pole position for an IPO in the United States. Sohu raised $30 million, its founder, Charles Zhang, capturing the mood of the day. This is a game of spending money and how fast you can spend money. Even William Ding at NetEase relented, raising in two rounds $20 million from investors, including Goldman Sachs, but not without venting his frustration that now people never ask you about your new products. They only ask you, when is your IPO? On October 7th, Alibaba tried to grab some of the limelight with a press conference in Hong Kong to announce a new version of its website and disclosing that it was open to an IPO in the United States or on the planned second board of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the growth enterprise market. Caught up in the excitement of Hong Kong, Alibaba also announced that it would move its headquarters there from Hangzhou. Jack had been spending most of his time in Hong Kong, 
working with Joe and some new recruits out of a conference room in Goldman's office. The contrast couldn't have been greater between Alibaba's humble, second-floor Lakeside Gardens apartment in Hangzhou and its new perch atop the gleaming Citibank Plaza skyscraper with breathtaking views over Victoria Harbor. To support Goldman's newest portfolio company, Shirley Lin conducted a series of interviews with media in Hong Kong, even going on local television stations to spread the word about Alibaba. My Cantonese was so bad back then they had to subtitle me, she recalls. When Goldman moved to even shinier new offices atop billionaire Li Keqing's brand-new Chiang Kong Center, Alibaba signed a lease on its own impressive and expensive new space, the first major outlay from Goldman's $5 million that had hit the bank. Alibaba could get down to business. Its business was simple, to become the leading website in China for business-to-business -business leads. To match buyers with sellers, Alibaba organized its members' postings into 27 industry sectors, such as apparel and fashion, electronics and electrical, and industrial supplies. Users could sign up for free to receive notification of trade deals and search for offers to buy or sell within a sector or a geographical area. By October 1999, Alibaba had signed up more than 40,000 users. Now it had to go for a much higher quantity of users while maintaining the quality of the messages tacked onto its virtual bulletin board. Most of the sellers on its site were export or trading companies in China, including a strong representation of firms led by Zhejiang entrepreneurs. The Internet was still new for many of these firms, but they quickly became loyal users of Alibaba.com. Many lacked the scale or connections needed to trade through the state-owned trading companies, and some were located in remote areas that made traveling to trade shows like the Canton Fair too expensive. Having grown up among them and served them as clients of Hope Translation and China Pages, Jack had a keen sense of what these small firms needed. Most SMEs, small and medium enterprises, have a very changeable dynamic. Today, they might sell T-shirts. Tomorrow, it could be chemicals. To attract buyers, Alibaba needed to ensure vendors' listings were translated accurately into English. Drawing on the talent pool of university graduates in Hangzhou, Alibaba started to hire English-speaking editors to ensure that the posts on the bulletin board were complete, intelligible, and properly categorized. Leveraging his contacts from Movtech in Beijing, Jack also hired recruits with trade know-how to make the website attractive to foreign buyers. Posting on the site for buyers and sellers was free, a central tenet of Jack's approach throughout his career. His if-you-build-it-they-will-come approach helped him pull clear of any rivals. If visitors to Alibaba.com were able to make new trade leads, he figured, they would demonstrate increasing loyalty or stickiness to the website. But while free was great for users, it was a tough business model. Alibaba was vulnerable to any downtime in the Internet funding frenzy. Also, as traffic grew dramatically on Alibaba's website, maintaining the quality of postings was a big job. If Alibaba wasn't careful, it could be overwhelmed. Another challenge was the increasing competition for talent. In the dot-com boom, skilled employees constantly jumped ship to rival ventures, or, tapping the growing pool of venture funding, tried their luck at their own startups.
the cost of talent started to spiral upward, including for the software developers, web designers, and project managers that Alibaba would need to build out its offerings. Here, Alibaba had two important things going for it, Hangzhou and Jack Ma. Unlike Beijing and Shanghai, where turnover of qualified employees was a major headache for entrepreneurs, Hangzhou had a deep pool of fresh graduates and very few local employers. In addition, Alibaba benefited from Hangzhou's relative isolation. There weren't really any rivals to poach his employees. A few other technology firms were located in the town, such as UT Starcom or Eastcom, but in the dot-com craze, these were fast becoming old economy ventures. Alibaba also benefited from Hangzhou's distance from Shanghai, then some two hours away. For young, talented engineers in Hangzhou who wanted to work for a fast-growing internet venture, Alibaba was it. This helped keep costs low too. For the price of one engineer in Beijing or Shanghai, Alibaba could hire two. The comparison with Silicon Valley was even more dramatic, as Jack pointed out. To keep one programmer happy in Silicon Valley takes fifty thousand dollars to one hundred thousand dollars. For that much money in China, I can keep ten very smart people happy all the time. As a second-tier city, real estate was cheaper in Hangzhou too. Even after Alibaba moved into a two hundred thousand square foot office in early two thousand, its total rental bill was just eighty thousand dollars a year, a fraction of what it would have been in Beijing or Shanghai. Jack liked the distance from Beijing, even though the infrastructure is not as good as in Shanghai. It's better to be as far away from the central government as possible. Ali people, when building up his team, Jack preferred hiring people a notch or two below the top performers in their schools. The college elite, Jack explained, would easily get frustrated when they encountered the difficulties of the real world. For those who came aboard, working for Alibaba would be no picnic. The pay was low. The earliest hires earned barely fifty dollars per month. They worked seven days a week, often sixteen hours a day. Jack even required them to find a place to live no more than ten minutes from the office, so they wouldn't waste precious time commuting. From the outset, Alibaba has been driven by a Silicon Valley-style work ethic, with every employee issued share options in the company. Vesting over a four-year period, this is still a rarity in China, where the traditional setup in private companies was an emperor-like boss who treated employees as disposable and salaries as discretionary. As the Alibaba.com website grew in popularity, aided by offering its services for free, the team in Hangzhou struggled to keep up with the volume of incoming emails. Alibaba's customer service team found themselves at times acting as free tech support to clients, responding to questions about how to reboot a computer. But wedded to its customer-first tenet, Alibaba resolved to respond to every email within two hours. Keeping the team focused, co-founder Simon Shea recalled, "Jack was a culture, a nucleus." Jack greeted new recruits with a sobering message and a promise, then trotting out one of his favorite sayings: "Today is brutal, tomorrow is more brutal, but the day after tomorrow is beautiful." However, the majority of people will die tomorrow night; they won't be able to see the sunshine the day after tomorrow. 
Aliren must see the sunshine the day after tomorrow. Co-founder Lucy Pang, Alibaba's first human resources director and later its chief people officer, also played an important role in the hiring process and in shaping the company's culture. In a 2000 Harvard Business School case study on the company, she commented that Alibaba employees don't need experience. They need good health, a good heart, and a good head. As the website's members grew, companies in China began to use the site to connect with one another as well as to the outside world, prompting the launch of a Chinese language marketplace for wholesalers in China seeking domestic trade leads. Yet Alibaba still encountered difficulties winning converts to the e-commerce cause. Some balked at the high costs of buying computers. Others lacked personnel with a sufficient understanding of IT. An even bigger obstacle was a pervasive lack of trust. Suppliers worried that customers they had never met might never pay for their orders. Buyers overseas were concerned about fake or defective goods or shipments that never arrived. Alibaba couldn't wave a magic wand to make these risks go away, as Jack emphasized to the media. We are just a platform for business people to meet, but we do not take legal responsibility. Alibaba kept its focus as a bulletin board for businesses, but others, such as Meet China, were talking up their plans to expand into areas like market research, credit checks on suppliers, quality inspections, shipping, insurance, and payments. Jack argued this was premature. Small and medium-sized companies do not trust transactions online yet, and we believe the current banking system is good enough for small business. As long as our members feel it's easy, they'd prefer to do their transactions offline. Alibaba was struggling to define itself in ways that investors could understand. We don't really have a clearly defined business model yet, Jack admitted. If you consider Yahoo a search engine... Amazon, a bookstore, eBay, an auction center, Alibaba is an electronic market. Yahoo and Amazon are not perfect models, and we're still trying to figure out what's best. Goldman's cash had helped, but the commitment to free listings meant that Alibaba had to raise more capital soon, something made more pressing by the opening of the new Hong Kong office and another in Shanghai, which Alibaba announced would serve as its new China headquarters. To sign up more customers, Alibaba started to host gatherings of SMEs in hotel ballrooms, arranging tables to group together companies from similar industries. Despite the hectic pace during the Internet bubble and the growing sense of inevitability that it would soon pop, Jack betrayed few signs of anxiety. I visited Hangzhou several times in late 1999 and 2000, and witnessed Alibaba sprout from the lakeside apartment through a series of ever-larger offices. I never witnessed Jack lose his cool, even when he dinged the fender of his car one day on a concrete column when we were parking at a restaurant where he'd invited me to lunch. I always found my visits to Hangzhou enjoyable. Spending time with Jack was invariably good fun. Like many visits before and since, I enjoyed seeing the city's sights. On one visit, Jack's wife, Kathy, took me to visit the famous Longjin Dragonwell tea plantations, including a walk through the bamboo forest nearby, a breath of fresh air, literally, after Beijing. Jack was now spending much of his time away from Hangzhou, 
speaking at industry and investor conferences. In January 2000, we were both invited to speak at a student-organized event at Harvard. I met up with Jack before the conference. As we walked along an icy pathway on the banks of the Charles River, I noticed one of his entourage was filming the scene, something I later discovered she had been doing for years already. The conference featured a number of other China Internet entrepreneurs, most with much stronger academic pedigrees than Jack. Some were recent returnees to China, like Xiao Yibo of EachNet, who had actually studied at Harvard. Peter Yip from China.com was also there. But Jack quickly emerged as the star of the show, especially when he confessed to the audience that he really had no idea what Alibaba's business model was, adding, And yet I got investment from Goldman Sachs. Jack reveled in the attention he received at Harvard, including the moniker Crazy Jack that Time magazine gave him shortly after. He particularly enjoyed talking about the reversal of fortune of being once rejected by Harvard, but later being invited there to give a talk. I did not get an education from Harvard. I went to Harvard to educate them. Jack has always been dismissive of business schools. It is not necessary to study an MBA. Most MBA graduates are not useful. Unless they come back from their MBA studies and forget what they've learned at school, then they will be useful. Because schools teach knowledge, while starting businesses requires wisdom. Wisdom is acquired through experience. Knowledge can be acquired through hard work. SoftBank invests. One of the reasons that Jack was on such a high at Harvard was that he was on the verge of announcing another important milestone for Alibaba, $20 million in fresh funding from the Japanese investment firm SoftBank. With this and a subsequent investment, SoftBank became Alibaba's largest shareholder. The deal was teed up by Alibaba's investor, Goldman Sachs. SoftBank was on the lookout for tech investment opportunities in China when Mark Schwartz, then president of Goldman Sachs Japan, told Masayoshi Son, SoftBank's founder, about the bank's growing portfolio of tech investments in China. In October 1999, Jack was one of several entrepreneurs invited to meet Masayoshi Son in one of a series of speed-dating sessions between the Chinese startups and the Japanese billionaire arranged by Chauncey She, president of SoftBank China Venture Capital. The two men met at the wedding-cake-styled Fuhua Mansion in Beijing. The venue turned out to be a fitting one, their meeting the start of an enduring partnership that would eventually make Son the richest man in Japan. Son's backing of Jack, coming just months before the dot-com crash, transformed Alibaba's fortunes. Masayoshi Son Masayoshi's son, known to his friends as Masa, shares some similarities with Jack. Both are short in stature and known for their outsize ambitions. Son grew up in circumstances even more difficult than Jack's. Born on Japan's southernmost main island of Kyushu, the sons lived in a shack that didn't even have an official address. His father was a pig farmer who brewed moonshine on the side. Sun was bullied for being ethnically Korean and was forced to adopt the Japanese surname Yasumoto. At the age of 16, Sun moved to Northern California in search of a brighter future. Staying with friends and family, he attended Saramonte High School in Daly City, 
just south of San Francisco, before gaining acceptance to the University of California, Berkeley, where he started his entrepreneurial career. His most successful venture was building a voice-operated translation device to be sold at airport kiosks. Sun designed, built, and then licensed the technology to Sharp Electronics for half a million dollars. In the United States, Sun started to import early models of the Pac-Man and Space Invaders game consoles that were becoming popular at the time, leasing them to local bars and restaurants, including Yoshi's, a North Berkeley sushi bar, now a famous Bay Area jazz venue. At Berkeley, he also met and hired Lu Hongliang, whose venture, Unitech Industries, renamed Unitech Telecom in 1994, later became part of the technology venture UT Starcom, the Hangzhou-based company in which SoftBank invested in 1995. After moving back to Japan in the early 1980s, Sun started a software distribution company. At the launch of the venture, in a scene echoing Jack's own irrepressible optimism, he famously climbed on top of a shipping box in front of his employees, just two at the time, both working part-time, and vowed that their new venture would make 50 billion yen, $3 billion, in revenues within 10 years. By the time he first met Jack, Sun had become a billionaire many times over. He was known for making quick decisions. One of his best was the prescient investment he made in Yahoo in 1995. When Yahoo went public in 1996, Sun topped up SoftBank's stake in the portal to 37%, becoming its largest investor. Sun also negotiated the right for SoftBank to become Yahoo's exclusive partner in Japan, a deal that would yield him tens of billions more. Meeting Sun, Jack knew he had found a kindred spirit. We didn't talk about revenues. We didn't even talk about a business model. We just talked about a shared vision. Both of us make quick decisions, Jack recalled. When I went to see Masayoshi's son, I didn't even wear a suit that day. After five or six minutes, he began to like me, and I began to like him. People around him have said that we are soulmates. At their first meeting, after Jack had finished describing Alibaba, by now some 100,000 members strong, Sun immediately turned the conversation to how much SoftBank could invest. I listened to Mr. Ma's speech for five minutes and decided on the spot that I was ready to invest in Alibaba, Sun recalled. Sun interrupted Jack's presentation to tell him he should take SoftBank's money because he should spend money more quickly. Around the time of Alibaba's 2014 IPO, Sun was asked what it was that prompted him to bet on Jack back in 2000. It was the look in his eye. It was an animal smell. It was the same when we invested in Yahoo, when they were still only five to six people. I invested based on my sense of smell. This impulsiveness was typical for Sun. Masa is Masa. He has ADD, attention deficit disorder, and can't sit still. He just wants to give you money now, now, commented a former business associate. A few weeks after their first meeting in Beijing, Sun invited Jack to Tokyo to finalize terms. Joe Tsai joined him on the trip. As soon as they entered Sun's office, the negotiations began. Jack would later infuse his description of their meeting with martial art imagery. Masters of negotiation always listen, don't talk. 
Those who talk a lot only have second-rate negotiation skills. A true master listens, and as soon as he moves his sword, you pretty much collapse. Joe, who had met up with SoftBank China's Chauncey Shea before the trip, told me the details of their meeting. Goldman and the other funds had just invested $5 million for half of the company, valuing Alibaba at $10 million. Masa opened the negotiations by offering $20 million for 40% of the company. This valued Alibaba at $50 million post-money and $30 million pre-money. In just weeks, Goldman's investment had increased in value by three times. Joe and Jack looked at each other, Joe recalled, thinking, Woohoo, that's three times. But then we thought, we don't want to give up too much equity. So Jack said, Masa, that doesn't work for us. Masa had a calculator. He was literally doing the math right there. But Masa wanted 40%, so he said, How about double the amount? I put $40 million for 40%. That means $60 million pre-money. Jack and Joe offered to think it over. Upon their return to China, Jack wrote Sun an email turning down the $40 million investment. Instead, he offered to take in $20 million for 30%, adding, If you agree, we will go ahead. If not, that's it. Jack later explained why he turned down the larger amount. Why would I need to take so much money? I didn't know how to use it, and there would definitely be problems. Jack didn't have to wait long for his reply from Sun, which came in the form of two words, Go ahead. Jack credits Fortune with playing a hand in connecting him with Sun, conceding that it is quite difficult to find such an investor. Commenting on the dynamics of their relationship, Jack said, I think Masa is definitely one of the world's best businessmen, very sharp on investment. But, he adds, Sun is also a good operator of business, too. It's not easy to shift from investor to operator and meanwhile still be a good investor. For me, I'm just an operator. I love to be an entrepreneur. I'm not a good investor. Jack also liked to joke about their appearances. The difference between me and him is that I may look very smart, but in fact I am not. That guy seriously doesn't look very smart, but he is a very wise person. An early Alibaba employee, Xiao Yuan, has an interesting take on the relationship between the two founder-CEOs. Sun has a lot of self-confidence. He's even conceited but his appearance is always one of modesty. He's crazy, but Ma's also crazy. It's very common for crazy people to like each other. Announcing the deal, Sun himself drew a comparison with his wildly successful investment in Yahoo. We would like to make Alibaba the next Yahoo. I think this will probably be the first Chinese Internet company which will become a global brand, a global success in a big way. I am very excited to make that happen. The two firms also announced a joint venture for Alibaba Korea, which would launch in June 2000, to fend off the growth of a local player there, and drew up plans for a site in Japan as well. The deal was clearly a transformative one for Alibaba, and cause for celebration. In less than a year after the company's founding, Jack and Joe had reeled in $25 million from two of the largest and most prestigious investors in the world. The deal was not without a price. The sale of 30% of Alibaba to SoftBank 
came on the heels of the sale of 50% of the company to Goldman Sachs, meaning a hefty dilution of Jack's stake. Yet the SoftBank investment provided Alibaba with serious street cred in China, just as the three Chinese Internet portals geared up for their U.S. IPOs. The deal also gave Alibaba insurance. No one could predict with any certainty how long the tech investment boom would last. SoftBank's $20 million allowed it to build out a much longer runway on which to achieve takeoff and future profitability. Jack wanted to be noticed in Silicon Valley, too. Soon after he secured the $20 million investment from SoftBank, Jack headed to Santa Clara, California, the home of Yahoo. He traveled there to offer John Wu, a Yahoo executive whom Jack had first met when working at China Pages, the post of chief technology officer of Alibaba. It was an ambitious pitch. Jack was proposing that John take a 50% pay cut and leave the hottest company in Silicon Valley for a risky startup in Hangzhou. John expressed his misgivings to Jack, as he later recalled, Yahoo was doing well. My parents were immigrating to the U.S. I wasn't seriously considering this possibility. He was particularly keen to avoid moving his family back to China. Instead, Jack proposed he run Alibaba's R&D team from Fremont, California. John accepted. Jack, with a background as an English teacher, was keen to ensure that his own ignorance of technology was not replicated in Alibaba. For a first-class company, we need first-class technology. When John comes, I can sleep soundly. Hiring John Wu also gave Jack the opportunity to sprinkle some more Yahoo stardust on his venture. Sitting next to Jack in a press conference, John described Alibaba as a new form of Yahoo. Yahoo's search engine has shaped the way millions of people surf the Internet. Now Alibaba's e-commerce platform will fundamentally change the way people conduct business online. The Los Angeles Times commented that the ability of a Chinese startup to poach one of Silicon Valley's key players could bolster China's claim as the ultimate Internet frontier for the best minds in the industry. John jumped from Yahoo to Alibaba, he explained, because Alibaba's idea was an original one. If you compare the other leading Internet companies in China, he said, Almost all of them are copying business models already existing in the U.S. Shirley Lin at Goldman Sachs had been attracted to Alibaba for its localness. John Wu saw the same merits. There are a lot of Internet companies started by people who studied in the U.S. and came back to China. Jack Ma is different. He has been in China all his life. With fresh capital, new recruits and more than 150,000 members in 188 countries signed up on the website, things were looking up for Alibaba. But the bubble was about to pop. Chapter 8 Burst and Back to China Be the Last Man Standing Jack Ma By the spring of 2000, Alibaba was signing up more than a thousand new members a day. Connecting suppliers in China with global buyers was clearly a good idea. But other companies with the same idea were proliferating, and some actively raising capital, too. Meet China raised another $11 million, some of which came from a soft bank fund, and announced a sales target of $10 million that year and planning for an IPO. Global Sources 
the veteran publisher of trade magazines, announced it had hired Goldman Sachs to prepare for a Nasdaq IPO and stepped up its hiring in China. Other contenders entered the fray as well, including entrepreneurs who pivoted to business-to-business e-commerce after seeing Alibaba's success in raising capital. Faced with increasing competition and flush with cash, Alibaba accelerated its expansion. In the months following SoftBank's investment, the company went on a hiring spree in mainland China, Hong Kong, and Fremont, California, where incoming CTO John Wu set up their U.S. outpost. Government on the Fence Speculation grew about an IPO, yet the most likely companies to go public, the three Chinese portals, had hit a roadblock. Their success was helping to popularize the consumer Internet faster than the government had expected. Four million Internet users was a drop in the ocean in a population of 1.3 billion. Yet the things that made the portals popular, especially email and news, made a government bent on control increasingly nervous. Within China's ruling Communist Party, a debate was raging over how to handle the Internet. Conservatives pointed out that the Internet had originated as the project of a U.S. defense agency. They argued that just because it was new, there was no reason to exclude Internet companies from the same restrictions that prevented or severely constrained foreign investment in the telecom sector or in print, radio, film, and TV. There was no Ministry of Internet, but the Internet touched so many areas that it set off bitter turf battles between existing regulators. To demonstrate their relevance, China's regulators regulate regularly, manifested in the Great Firewall of China, under construction ever since the Internet came to China's shore, an unceasing effort to filter content they deemed a threat to the country or to Communist Party rule. At the same time, with its huge investments in telecom infrastructure, the government had actually been pushing Xin Shihua, informatization, as essential for developing China's economy. There was consensus among the all-powerful Politburo Standing Committee, nearly all trained as engineers, that China needed a knowledge economy. An inability to adapt to new technology could spell disaster. The fall of the Qing dynasty is popularly attributed in part to its failure to adapt to modern military and industrial technologies, leaving it vulnerable to domination by Western powers. Some in China also blamed the fall of the Soviet Union on a failure to keep up with waves of technological advances in Silicon Valley, such as the semiconductor, computer, and software industries. But the government rejected any notion that the Internet would usher in the Western concept of an information society, something they believed could pose an existential threat to the Communist Party. Yet, without foreign investment, how could China's Internet entrepreneurs finance their ventures? Restricting them to domestic financing channels was impractical. China's own venture capital market was in its infancy, and its stock markets were dominated by SOEs. In any case, the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges required companies to have been in business for at least three years and to be profitable. All of China's Internet companies were new and operating unashamedly at a loss. China wanted a Silicon Valley, but one that it could control, built on its terms. Yet the distributed, bottom-up nature of the Internet was inimical to China's traditions, 
both imperial and Leninist, of top-down control of information. For those coming online, this was the Internet's central appeal. Professor Xu Rongshen, who had helped establish the first connection between the Institute of High Energy Physics in Beijing and Stanford University, describes the impact of the Internet as an information bomb exploding over China. Another popular description was that the Internet was God's gift to the Chinese, something echoed by investors and dissidents alike. Unable to stop the Internet, but nervous about facilitating its rise, how was the government to proceed? How could Chinese Internet entrepreneurs raise money overseas without their companies being classified as foreign companies and walled off from businesses in China? To resolve the contradiction, the three portals attempted all manner of contortions to secure government approval for their IPOs, arguing they weren't even Internet companies. After months of debate, an accommodation was finally reached, the VIE. The VIE, or Variable Interest Entity, is much loved by corporate lawyers in China for its rich, fee-producing complexity. Still in use today, it allows the Chinese government effectively to have its cake and eat it too, in this case allowing a thriving entrepreneurial Internet while maintaining control. The VIE is the subject of ongoing debate for investors in Alibaba, how much protection does it really give them? The structure allows foreign investors a degree of control over the revenues generated by a Chinese company through a complicated arrangement of interlocking contracts that, thanks to the personal engagement of Chinese entrepreneur founders, continues to treat that company as Chinese. The compromise was brokered by Sina and its lawyers with the Ministry of Information Industry, MII, amongst other agencies. MII Minister Wu Jichuan had earlier stood in the way of any portal IPOs, but the VIE broke the logjam. His voice carried weight, as he was the architect of the drive for informatization, the investment in infrastructure without which the country's Internet boom would not have been possible. The VIE has its origins in another complicated investment structure that a few years earlier, Wu, ironically, had taken the lead in dismantling. On April 13, 2000, the first of the three Chinese portals finally got its IPO. Sina raised $68 million on the Nasdaq. NetEase and Sohu soon followed. But the portals were to have a very difficult birth as public companies. The reason? The bubble had burst. Bubble Ball and Burst From its peak in March 2000, the Nasdaq began a two-year losing streak wiping out trillions of dollars of market capitalization and taking down many technology firms with it. NetEase's shares dropped 20% on the first day of trading after its IPO in June. Sohu limped to an IPO in July, but after that there would be no more issuances for Chinese Internet companies for more than three years. The IPO door was now firmly shut to the other Chinese Internet companies, including Alibaba, as investors once again cared about revenues and profits. Just as the markets started to tank, and on the fringes of the Internet World Conference in Beijing, I hosted a party at a business club called the Capital Club. I titled the party, as a joke, the Bubble Ball. They say you never know you're in a bubble until it pops. But in the spring of 2000, there was a growing sense that everything was about to come to a crashing halt.
For me, the trigger was an event a few weeks after Time magazine ran a cover story on February 28, 2000, on the Chinese internet market, entitled Struggle.com. The opening paragraph was a story I had told to Time journalist Terry McCarthy about my first meeting with one of the portal pioneers. William Ding, founder of NetEase, one of China's top internet portals, was uneasy. As he talked to a friend in a Beijing restaurant last summer, something was irritating him. The air conditioning. It was too cold. Without interrupting the conversation, the self-taught techie took out his Palm Pilot electronic organizer, pointed the infrared port at the aircon unit, and adjusted the temperature from across the room. His friend's jaw dropped. At an extravagant dinner party hosted in Shanghai on the grounds of a colonial-era mansion a few weeks after the Time article ran, an investor came up to introduce herself and told me excitedly about how our host, a senior investment banker, had confided that she, not I, was the friend featured in the article. Wounded ego aside, I started to realize that as the bankers began to invent stories of their closeness to the entrepreneur, the days of the Internet boom were numbered. The bubble ball name proved more apt than I could have imagined. Jack came along and danced until the small hours, along with Charles Zhang from Sohu, in a unique style that reminded me of Elaine Bennis in Seinfeld. William Ding from NetEase and 400 others in what turned out to be the last party of a short-lived but Gatsby-esque era. CNN and the Australian broadcaster ABC were there to videotape the scene. Viewed today, the graininess of the videos conveys how long ago it was, but also the unbridled exuberance of that time. For Jack, the bursting of the bubble represented a great opportunity for Alibaba. I made a call to our Hangzhou team and said, Have you heard the exciting news about the Nasdaq? I'd like to have had a bottle of champagne on hand. Adding, This is healthy for the market, and it's very healthy for companies like us. He felt confident that now the IPO gate had closed, venture capitalists would stop funding Alibaba's competitors. In the next three months, more than 60% of the Internet companies in China will close their doors, he said, adding that Alibaba had spent only $5 million of the $25 million it had raised. We haven't touched our second-round funding. We have lots of gasoline in our tank. With the field opening up, Alibaba increased its hiring of foreign employees to market the company to buyers overseas. Jack started to travel intensively around the world to attend trade shows and meet chambers of commerce. Jack was, by this time, quite familiar with the United States. On his first trip to Europe, though, he experienced some culture shock. I advised Alibaba on its expansion strategy there, recommending a Swiss friend of mine, Abir Orebi who would oversee the company's European operations for the next eight years. On his first visit to London, Jack was booked into the city's prestigious Connaught Hotel, but couldn't understand why he had to stay in such an old building. In Zurich, Jack and Kathy were perplexed by the fact that all the shops were closed. Abir explained that it was a Sunday, prompting Kathy to exclaim, Oh, I see. They're all working second jobs today. Coming from the non-stop business culture of China, the concept of shopkeepers taking a whole day off to rest was unimaginable. Alibaba stepped up its advertising, too. Suddenly, the company's signature orange blanketed print and online media in the mainland. 
including on the Chinese portals. Alibaba commissioned a glossy television ad that ran on CNBC and CNN, a first for a China-based tech startup. Todd Dom, an American executive who had recently joined Alibaba in Hong Kong, oversaw the production of the video, which Jack described to him jokingly as "my second favorite video after Forrest Gump." TV ad campaigns aside, Jack continued to be Alibaba's most effective marketing tool. Despite the dot-com downturn, people came in droves to hear his speeches. When he spoke in Hong Kong in May 2000 at an I and I Internet and Information Asia event in the Furama Hotel, more than 500 people turned up. Jack was gaining profile overseas too, invited as a global internet luminary to an internet event in Barcelona, Spain. As Alibaba surpassed the 300,000 member mark. Jack was featured on the cover of Forbes Global magazine, which named the company, along with global sources, as "Best of the Web for B2B e-commerce." That was followed by a full-page profile in the Economist titled "The Jack Who Would Be King." But as the stock market continued its downward slide, enthusiasm for internet companies of any description began to dwindle. In August 2000. NetEase's shares sank below a third of their IPO price, and Sohu's under half. In late July, only five months after a blockbuster Hong Kong IPO, the local portal Tom.com, backed by billionaire Li Kaxing, laid off 80 employees. China.com followed suit soon after. The internet conferences started to thin out. I and I even dropped the word internet, and then faded into oblivion. Along with many of the companies that had once presented at its events, dot com had become dot bomb. At a venture capital investor conference in Hong Kong that fall, Jack was one of the featured speakers. In a dramatic reversal from the crowds that Jack had drawn just a few months earlier, Goldman Sachs had to scramble to find people to fill an empty conference room to hear his pitch. Standing at the podium in front of a skeptical audience. An investor recounted to me, Jack cupped his hands in front of his face, squinted his eyes, and declared, "I can see the end of the tunnel." But in the face of growing investor cynicism about the sector, Jack magic was wearing off. Meanwhile, in California, Alibaba's efforts to build an R&D center under John Wu's leadership were running into problems. In an effort to overhaul the company's disparate software platforms. Alibaba had hired more than 30 engineers in its new Fremont office, but coordinating with their colleagues in China across a 15-hour time difference was proving a headache. Forced to use English for the benefit of non-Chinese-speaking colleagues in California, Chinese engineers in both offices struggled to communicate among themselves. The team started to fracture, and tempers frayed as Hangzhou pushed to develop one product, and Fremont another. After an infrastructure upgrade, the whole Alibaba.com site went down. Jack was visiting Fremont at the time and had to step in personally to force better cooperation between the two teams so that the problem could be fixed. It was clear that splitting the technology team across the Pacific had failed. Alibaba started to move core functions back to Hangzhou. Alibaba was about to embark on a new defensive strategy, B2C, or Back to China, pressures were mounting on Jack, including from his first investor Goldman Sachs, 
to prove that Alibaba could actually make money. Alibaba.com has a revenue plan for today, tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow, Jack commented. Today we are focused on revenues from online marketing services. Tomorrow we will add revenue sharing with third-party service providers, and the day after tomorrow we will add transaction-based revenues. To reassure investors and his team, Alibaba agreed to look at offering third-party services such as credit, transport, and insurance services. Together, these accounted for as much as $300 billion in annual revenues on total global trade of $7 trillion. Grabbing even a small slice of this pie could be extremely lucrative. This was the strategy already touted by Meet China. The company claimed that more than 70,000 Chinese suppliers and 15,000 prospective purchasers had joined its site. Although few transactions had been facilitated online, it disclosed it planned to take 2 to 6 percent of all transactions on its site. Bucking the investment downturn, Meet China surprised the market with a fresh venture capital infusion of $30 million, taking its total haul to over $40 million, some $15 million more than Alibaba. Co-founder Thomas Rosenthal told reporters, The volatility of the Nasdaq actually made it relatively easier to get private financing. You have a large amount of money chasing fewer deals. Recently appointed CEO Len Cordiner pursued a vision for the site as a place where you can not only find buyers, but also negotiate online. But Meet China would never make much headway in China. Talking up partnerships with third parties was much easier than making them work, and many of the tie-ups ending up being nothing more than links to its partners' websites. A former employee later summed up Meet China's experience as spending $30 million to train Chinese enterprises to use the Internet. Eventually, the company switched focus to Southeast Asia, launching MeetPhilippines.com and MeetVietnam.com in the presence of President Clinton and inking partnerships in India, Indonesia, South Korea, and Thailand before it folded. Jack had long been dismissive of Meet China, and as it fell to the wayside, he turned his guns on global sources, now Alibaba's main rival, and its founder, Merle Henricks. Jack dismissed global sources as an old economy company that had misunderstood the nature of online trade. They are a company pushing a publication. Merle Henricks, in turn, dismissed Alibaba as a mile wide and half an inch deep. Although global sources, recently listed shares, had tanked along with the Nasdaq, it was buoyed by substantial profits generated from its offline print business. Later in 2000, Jack and Henricks were both keynote speakers at an Internet conference in Hong Kong. Although he never referred to Henricks by name, Jack later told a story about a rival who owned a beautiful yacht who, after paying a $50,000 fee to be a keynote speaker, was incensed to find that Jack had been invited to give a keynote speech without having to pay a fee. The conference organizers explained to his rival, so Jack's story goes, that... It is because you want to be a keynote speaker, but the audience wants Jack Ma to speak. To which his rival vowed, I will sail the yacht to Hong Kong and will invite all the keynote speakers and speakers of the conference to have a party on my yacht, but I have one condition, that Jack Ma is not allowed. Merle Henrik's office declined to comment on the spat. But the rivalry is something that Jack, the philosopher CEO, 
invested with a deeper meaning. If you can't tolerate your opponents, you will be definitely beaten by your opponent. If you treat your opponents as enemies, you have already lost at the beginning of the game. If you hang your opponent as a target and practice throwing darts at him every day, you are only able to fight this one enemy, not others. Competition is the greatest joy. When you compete with others and find that it brings you more and more agony, there must be something wrong with your competition strategy. But in the latter half of 2000, it looked like there was something wrong with Alibaba's strategy. Although it had raised $25 million and signed up more than half a million users, its revenues that year wouldn't even hit the $1 million mark. Alibaba did start to charge some fees, helping build and host websites for some of its members, but expenses were increasing far more rapidly than revenues. Alibaba's hiring spree was creating more problems than it solved, as new recruits arrived before reporting and budgeting systems had been put in place. The international nature of its business was also a challenge, both in dealing with clients and in managing human resources. Trying to market a Chinese company with an Arabic name to clients in the United States and Europe wasn't proving easy, and Jack admitted that managing a multinational organization is no easy task with the language and cultural gaps. As the tech downturn continued into 2001, Jack and Joe recognized that things needed to change. In January 2001, they brought on board as Chief Operating Officer Savio Kwan, a 52-year-old veteran of GE, who gave a frank assessment of the company. We need to ground Alibaba in reality and make it into a business. Back to China. Kwan's arrival heralded a new management structure that became known internally as the Four O's, Jack as CEO, Joe Tsai as CFO, John Wu as CTO, and Savio Kwan as COO. To signal to the company how serious he was about change, Jack divided his own office in Hangzhou in two, giving the other half to Kwan. Kwan slashed monthly expenses by as much as half, stepping up the back-to-China retrenchment. A joint venture in South Korea was scrapped, and Alibaba's Silicon Valley presence drastically scaled back. Many of the higher-paid foreign employees were let go. Expensive advertising campaigns were abandoned and replaced with word-of-mouth marketing. Reducing expenses overseas allowed Alibaba to increase its hiring at home, leveraging Hangzhou's deep pool of lower-cost talent. It rapidly expanded its sales team to focus on promoting fee-paying services such as TrustPass, which provided credit information and authentication services, and Gold Supplier, which gave exporters in China their own presence on Alibaba's English-language website. For $3,600, they could use this to display their products and prices and be linked to Alibaba's search engine. Gold Supplier was explicitly designed to undercut the $10,000 to $12,000 in annual fees that Global Sources charged for its online listings. Despite the early promise from these new revenue sources, Alibaba was taking a beating. Since it was still a private company, the negative sentiment couldn't be measured in dollars and cents, unlike the three portals, whose shares had by now been reduced to penny stocks. Businessweek ran an article in April 2001 titled, Alibaba's Magic Carpet is Losing Altitude, 
which concluded that the former professor will have to work hard to ensure his company doesn't flunk out. The company had initiated a restructuring that it hoped would turn things around, but in the years following the dot-com crash, Alibaba was resigned to a very uncertain future. Jack even floated the prospect of quitting so he could return to teaching before he turned 40. In his darker moments, he took to comparing his struggles to those of the revolutionary Mao Zedong after the Long March, even calling for a rectification movement to set Alibaba on a new course. Once many well-known managers in America came to Alibaba to be vice presidents, each of them had their own opinions. It was like a zoo at the time. Some were good at talking, while others were quiet. Therefore, we think the most important purpose of a rectification movement is to decide a shared purpose of Alibaba and determine our value. Alibaba's reversal of fortunes had been dramatic, but it didn't break the bond between Jack and Joe Tsai. I asked Joe what kept him at Alibaba when everything seemed so bleak. Alibaba, he explained, was my fourth job. I wanted this job to work. Unlike the three portals, Joe also saw the advantages for Alibaba of not having had an IPO. I knew all of this was a bubble, and even if we had gone public in 2000, we would have to live with the consequences, the delivery. You would have had to grow into your valuation. It was a quick buck kind of thing. The dark days of 2001 and 2002 would later become part of Alibaba lore. Jack later referred to the period in one of his pep talks to the team. At that time, my slogan was, Be the last man standing. Be the last person to fall down. Even on my knees, I had to be the last man collapsing. I also believed firmly at that time that if I had difficulties, there must be someone who had worse difficulties. If I had a hard time, my opponents had an even harder time. Those who can stand and manage will win eventually. In the years that followed the dot-com crash, Alibaba slashed costs and found a way to steadily increase its revenues. Even though the venture capital market had dried up completely, Alibaba was able to stand on its own two feet. And, thanks to a new business launched in the spring of 2003, it was about to succeed on a scale that even Jack could never have imagined.